Warning, the following podcast may contain material that is inappropriate for listeners that are under the age of 18, are easily offended, or get annoyed listening to the rantings of holier-than-thou-know-it-alls that are anything but. It's like two minutes long, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. And it's just the same Casio keyboard thing over and over again on loop, and everyone listens to it and be like, God, what the hell is this? When's the actual show going to start? We have to play the whole thing I don't know once. if we need to do the whole thing, but it's probably more appropriate than the NWO theme. It'll just drive people mad. It's like that episode of The Critic where he had that little stand-up and it said, Buy my book! Buy, Buy my, my book. book! And then the guy Buy shot himself because he worked in the store. That's what this song is going to be to people. State-of-the-art Japanese animation. <laughs> this is about where the Wesley Willis music kicks in. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Hearing this on Eight Man After on the Sci-Fi Channel, it's played at the end of every episode. You have yeah. the credits. I can already see the montage. Yeah, I, I, as soon as the music kicks in, it's the way they, they fingernail dodging. <laughs> where they put Luke in the third. Tales of the Wolf. Yes, Tales of the Wolf, right next to Wicked City. Yeah. And the guy's head being ripped in half and pissed to the North Star. No, I believe it was, in fact, the guy's head melting from the nuclear warhead. Oh, is that it? Yes. <laughs> I don't even this remember is... this part. <laughs> this is like the guy's drugs just started to kick in. I thought it was just the melody on loop for two minutes straight. No. <laughs> this I is like around this. the part where it's like, price twice keeps. keeps. Yeah. <laughs> Anime that speaks your language. <laughs> is this on YouTube, like the actual video part? I don't believe it is. Oh. And I think we, we need to put it on. Yep, that's what's gonna have to happen. Yep. Are we recording? We've been recording for the last <laughs> six minutes. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> This is our momentous show number 50 of the Anime World Order podcast. I don't know how it happened, but here we are. Podcaster milestone, folks. And we don't count the fact that we actually reached 50 episodes. Long ago, yeah, around like 40-something. <laughs> as far as items that you can listen to. <laughs> but yeah, that thing that you were just listening to either for two full minutes or for 30 seconds, depending on how sadistic we were feeling, was... <laughs> two the, minutes. Yeah, was, fact, we'll, play it, we'll play it twice, back to back. Just yeah, yeah. Again. It was the Streamline Pictures trailer that they put in front of all their tapes back in the days. That was the, what is anime? 
of, of the day. Of yeah. the day, yes. Maybe we should use that looping Casio keyboard song <laughs> as the theme song from now on. I think we should just play that in the background. This During the entire, entire episode, episode. <laughs> just play it. and That works. But anyway, before we start getting terribly off topic, introductions are in order, just in case people have not been listening to us for 50 episodes. Should we reintroduce ourselves, considering the first time we introduced ourselves was our crappy first episode, which nobody could hear us? Yeah, I guess we can afford to quickly reintroduce ourselves. I'm Daryl Surratt. I've been watching anime for a little over a decade by now, probably closer to 15 years at this point, but whatever, I'm into stupid things. <laughs> uh, I am Gerald Rathkolb. I've been watching anime since about 1989. That's, that's about it. I like old stuff. I like new stuff. What else is there to say? This is why the introductions were never redone. <laughs> yep. And I'm Clarissa, and yeah, pretty much the same thing. I've been watching anime for at least 10 years by now. We're all losers. I mean, what else is there really? <laughs> yeah, the fact that we've all been watching this. anime for at least 10 years tells people that we're all in our 20s, which makes us slightly older than most anime fans, but not quite old enough to be old anime fan people. So right. Mm -hmm. we like to pride ourselves on thinking that we have a decent general knowledge. Even though I think everybody always thinks that we're old. They all think we're like 38. Because we're already crotchety. I'm pretty sure that they all think that we're actually older than Aaron from Weekly Anime Review when Aaron's actually older than us. <laughs> He's like 32. 32, exactly, I believe. Nice. Anyway, our website, for those who don't know, is www.animeworldorder.com. You should go there. Yeah, people should go there instead of emailing us questions that can be answered by going to the website. Hey guys, did you review this, or when are you going to review this? Go to the website. There's an index. Of all the shows we've reviewed to date, plus there's notes for each episode, mm -hmm. which are semi-informative. <laughs> <laughs> the, at the very least, they have time codes for when the segments begin and end. Yeah. And a lot of links to things that we think are useful. <laughs> no or just on really stupid. <laughs> and videos of people vomiting. Oh, and yeah, what are we doing this week? <laughs> <laughs> the thing is that everything that we're doing this week could probably have its own show. So Yeah, we figured show 50, you gotta bring out the big guns. So what are the big guns as far as Anime World Order is concerned? Yeah, well, my big gun is going to be an anime that was an entry-level anime for a lot of people, an entire generation of anime fans. And that is the classic OAV Megazone 2-3 Part 1. So that's a pretty... Good example of an mm -hmm. old-style anime. A.K.A. The Matrix version. The version. <laughs> right. The Matrix 0 0.5. Yeah. So we'll explain that in more detail in the segment. <laughs> Wachowskis are full of shit! That's it. Wachowski. What? I think he said Wachowskis are full of shit, but he oh. yelled so loud it, it clipped. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's a pretty old anime that a lot of people listening probably have never heard of or vaguely remember from long ago, but that's mm -hmm. not the only thing we're about, because Clarissa, what do you got? Well, I'm taking a look at a show that isn't really old, but is largely overlooked by most people, it seems. The shoujo anime Princess Tutu. So, from Megazone 2, 3, Part 1 to Princess Tutu. Yes. Pretty good range on that part. Yeah. yeah. I'm unfortunately going to have to tip the scales myself, because this week I've decided to review something that most people are afraid to review for good reason yeah yep. i was gonna do this and then i was like no no <laughs> i've taken too many <laughs> right because clarissa reviewed arcadia of my youth aka my youth in arcadia and that was a terrifying thing 
Yes. Gerald reviewed Uratsuki Doji, Legendly Overfiend, another terrifying thing. Very terrifying. Ghost in the Shell. Ghost in the Shell is another one you reviewed. And I've been going fairly lightweight, so this time, my review will be on the 1984 movie that, for my money's worth, sums up what anime in the 1980s meant to people. Yep. Mm -hmm. Super Dimensional Fortress, Macross, Do You Remember Love? Oh, oh man, so good. And Such a good movie. As uh, you can tell, the theme this week is explosive decompression. Yes, people dying <laughs> in the blackness of space due to decompression as a result of having their spacesuits compromised. Especially in Princess Tutu. Yes. <laughs> Especially in Princess Tutu. It happens tons oh, yeah. in Princess Tutu. Weren't you looking? Every episode. It's all behind the stage. <laughs> anyway, let's go to the email. We have an email here from Tony Elliott, and he writes... Hey all at AWO, it's Anthony Elliott again. I've been meaning to write in for a while now, but being a Hataraku man and all kept me fairly busy as of late. Hataraki, isn't it? He spelled it Hataraku. By the way, Hataraki Man is a really good show. It is. And Very. everyone should watch it. And it's doing really well in the ratings in Japan. It's beating Death Note, isn't it? Yeah. Beating everything. Yeah. At least in the late night anime time slot. He goes on to say, The reason I'm writing in is to comment on a topic you covered a few episodes ago. The topic is on why U.S. anime distributors don't publish sales numbers. You guys and gal covered different possible reasons on why they don't, but you didn't mention what seems to me a fairly obvious reason. They have to buy the contract they sell from the Japanese production companies. If they publish their sales figures, you can't tell me the original Japanese companies that hold the original license wouldn't follow those numbers. This could lead to major changes in how the Japanese license holders negotiated contracts. For example, say ADV released the first season of show X, not to be confused with X series, by creator Y and published by Gonzo. Now let's say the title sold fairly well and ADV published the sales figures. Now Gonzo decides to make a second season of show X or another show created by Y. This time they now know how well the last series did in the US, so they decide to demand a higher amount for any US company to pick it up, even though the show is in the same length and quality as the last show. This could, in turn, make the title expensive for any U.S. distributor to pick up, and the show never makes it out over here. Just as worst, they could pick it up, but are forced to increase the price or cut the episode count per disc. Seeing as how the market only has margin-thin profits to start, I can see why the U.S. distributors are reluctant to tip their hats at all to the Japanese rights holders. The simple fact is, all the U.S. companies are dependent on the Japanese companies for all the content they sell here in the U.S. I thought I'd throw that out there for you all to digest. As I said, I'm surprised that you didn't mention this as a possible reason for U.S. companies to hold back sales figures. I guess I watched too much CNBC. I think that already is happening. We probably didn't mention it because it's our stance that the Japanese are overvaluing the value and sales of these things. It's my impression that they already charge ridiculous amounts of money for a show, so I don't know if it could make it that much worse. I understand his reasoning. It's just the impression that I get from the numbers that I've seen makes it seem like Japan is already charging amounts for these shows as if it's going to sell probably even better than it actually does already. Perhaps it comes down to the fact that the numbers in America that might be just mediocre numbers or decent numbers or maybe even bad Mm. numbers might be amazing-looking numbers to the Japanese. And if they put out those sales figures, then suddenly you lose some bargaining power on the American Mm. end. And if you lose bargaining power, then you can't really get that price, or at least you can't give the impression that it should be a lower price. Right. The impression I always got was that if your copy sold 15,000, that's really good. For anime? Yeah. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, because I figured most things don't even sell near 15,000, as opposed to any release of a regular movie which sells 
Millions. Millions. Yeah. So I don't really see how it could really be worse if yeah. they were to say, actually, dude, even though you thought that Two Heart would have been the biggest <laughs> multimedia smash success. We sold 12 copies. <laughs> yeah. He just finishes off with a PS and he says, I thought the hentai episode was a hoot. It's a fun to listen to the off-format episodes every now and again. Besides, you couldn't call yourselves well-rounded anime reviewers, insert sarcasm, without including hentai every now and again. PPS. I might have to try out the whole anyone who wears a suit in an anime convention is cosplaying thing this year at Anime Central. The only question is, if anyone asks who I'm cosplaying as, do I tell them I'm not cosplaying and look at them like they're nuts or something, or make up something on the spot and see if they buy it and want a picture? No, you say, I'm not cosplaying. Or maybe say that you're cosplaying Carl Horn. Right. Mm, yeah. And then if they ask who Carl Horn is, then walk away. Yeah, because then you know they're not cool. It's like, you didn't see that one? <laughs> Aren't you with it? <laughs> Man, everybody's seen that show. Carl Horn's Adventures in Insane Land? I think Koike should write that. Koike should write everything. <laughs> Koike should write Princess Tutu. That's right. I was just going to say oh, that. Oh, man. <laughs> it'd be great. <laughs> but then it'd be all raping and no actual ballet. But it would be the most awesome ballet raping that you've ever seen. <laughs> it would be synchronized raping ballet style. <laughs> this is why we get very angry letters from people. Yes. <laughs> Actually, we don't usually get a whole lot of hate mail. Most people, I imagine, who mm. hate us that much probably don't, don't bother listen. to write in or listen to us. They just stop yeah. listening. Yeah. I think that's the same for a lot of the anime podcasts. But it's not like we hate getting hate mail. Rather, it's a rare treat. So, <laughs> with that in mind, <laughs> the subject here, episode 46, on the use of epithets. Hello, or goodbye, Anime World Order. For the most part, I've enjoyed your podcast. You seem to discuss relatively unique works and, for the most part, be relatively knowledgeable about them. Finally, I had thought to myself, an anime podcast discussing shows I either had seen or would be interested in seeing. Unfortunately, the boundary that had been approached by the use of gay as a pejorative and the ostensibly ironic sexist jokes was breached by the use of the disparaging and offensive epithet faggots in episode 46. Can you say that with more emphasis on the fag part? <laughs> A note should be made about any defense raised that the intent of the word's use was not to offend homosexuals, or that Mr. Surratt was simply, quote, ranting and was not to be taken seriously. A statement's meaning does not derive solely from what its speaker intended in his or her mind. A statement is going to be interpreted by its audience as well. It can then be imagined what a homosexual or a more culturally sensitive person may interpret the use of the term faggot as meaning. To quote an article on the website advocate.com, quote, using epithets, especially jokingly, does not eradicate its historical baggage or the existing social relations among us. Instead, dislodging these epithets from their historical context makes us insensitive and arrogant to the historical injustices done to specific groups of Americans, end quote. On that note, will I, 
a young faggot, continue to voluntarily listen to a podcast that disparages my sexuality with a word possessing connotations of the historical use of homosexuals as kindling for the burning of witches, faggot literally meaning a bundle of sticks for burning, no, I will not. Your former listener, who wrote this thing anyway? Yeah, who sent that in? I don't know, some faggot. God, uh, no, he, he said it was from his Sean, proud member of the Rose Tribe. Let me back up. Rose Tribe is... How uh, pretentious is that, dude? Seriously? Come on. I didn't even remember me saying this at all. I just decided to read this in light of recent current events where multiple shitty people have said the word faggot in the national stage and yeah. gotten in the paper for it. But upon checking, it was in Show 46, which was our hentai episode. Mm-hmm. And at the very end of Belladonna... I was talking about, oh, if you like this, then, you know, you must be crazy, and maybe you're some crazy art faggot, and then you'll like it. And that's how I used it. I wrote him back, and I said, the beginning of every episode of this podcast has a warning, and it says the following podcast may contain material that is inappropriate for listeners that are under the age of 18, are easily offended, or get annoyed listening to the rantings of holier than dolls that are anything but... Obviously, he falls into, at the very least, the category of people who are easily offended. All I got to say is we gave him a warning. I'm reading this email to let everyone know how offensive and distasteful I am because, of, you know, what is obviously a hatred of how 10% of the world's population are born. That's what we're about here at the AWO. Like, seriously? All right. I'm probably the person on here who cares the most about this kind of stuff and takes this stuff the most seriously. And I'm not going to sit here and try and give my gay cred or anything and talk about how many people I know who are homosexual or whatever. Right, because, because whenever someone's accused of being a homophobe yes. or a racist, they yeah. always say, oh, no, I've got friends you know, who are and no one Yeah, that's a pointless exercise. It, yeah. it doesn't mean anything. So I'm not going to waste time with that. But I am going to say that what he says about the fact that people interpret this is true and definitely certain words are hurtful for certain groups of people. But I think that part of interpreting something is context. I was actually just reading a blog entry, as you were mentioning, talking about shitty people using the word faggot recently. And it was talking about the whole Ann Coulter thing. Yeah, she's not a person anyway. Yeah, no, not really. It was talking about conservative bloggers and pundits shooting back of, you know, oh, well, liberal bloggers and whatnot use dirty words all the time. And oh, look, I found this post here on a feminist blog that used the word faggot. But they completely ignored the fact that the word in that context was being used ironically to mock the attitudes of conservatives. Context is important to how something is used. Yes, the word in itself has a bad history and it can be very hurtful, but context is important too. Just like if you're looking at the use of the N-word and certain African Americans using that word, then obviously them using it among themselves has a different context and connotation than a white person using it, especially using it intentionally to be hateful. And so I'm not down with being a bigot either, but... I think we use that term ironically. I don't think we were really Let's look at the context in which this word was used. Because we said this in the hentai episode, an episode that was devoted entirely to the vilest cartoon pornography imaginable. Stuff with child rape, torture, scat, bestiality, necrophilia. 
but the thing that this guy Women decided being to raped be to up death? in arms in is this word that I didn't even remember being spoken until he wrote it in. The last part that struck me as pretentious, because that's what you, your response initially was, was that he said he was a proud member of the Rose Tribe at the very end. For those who don't Dude, know... Dude, I get that reference, and that's so, do so I. pretentious. Come yeah, here, here's the thing. There was a magazine called Barazoku, which means Rose Tribe, a right. Japanese magazine back in the early 1970s. It's a gay magazine, yeah. A yeah. gay magazine, and the idea was it described gay men as being part of the Rose Tribe and lesbians being part of the Yurizoku. Lily Tribe. Yeah, the Lily hmm. Tribe. Right. That, by the way, is one of the theories of the origin of the word Yuri. Yeah. The thing is, though, that's not common knowledge, and it's very obvious that this person was probably not reading that magazine back in the 70s, and he probably just read it off the YaoiCon website <laughs> or the YuriCon website and decided, yep, I'm going to start saying that I'm part of the Rose Tribe, and yeah. the cool people will know, and the mundanes won't, and I'm not impressed. And I have suspect that he, he expected we wouldn't even get the reference, which is like, come on, dude. Seriously. Yeah. I'm sorry if your feelings were hurt, but come on. If that made him that mad, I really hope he never plays Counter-Strike in his life or goes on Xbox Live or any of that things. <laughs> Basically stays off the internet, maybe. Pretty much. Welcome to the internet, guy. Don't ever go not to 4chan. Anymore. <laughs> yeah. Especially not 4chan. Other emails. Yeah. That's a terrible place. <laughs> yeah, moving on to something a little more uh, light in tone. We got another email from Jerome. And the title of this email I like a lot is uh, Shut the Fuck Up, Wildstar, and Let Me Pilot the Damn Ship. <laughs> Venture never said that enough. No. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He says, Hey, AWO, I've started to listen to you guys' podcasts, but I've only made it up to episode 26 so far. And other than occasionally getting annoyed by Daryl's rants, I enjoy the show. Rants? What rants? <laughs> I, I don't know what he could be talking about. <laughs> I especially liked the shows with Tim Eldred and Steve Harrison. Although you guys don't really explain who Steve Harrison is, maybe I should know, but typically I don't seek out industry people, even in U.S. entertainment. <laughs> Steve, you hear that? Steve, you're, you're part of the industry, and you're, you're the reason why the plan failure model is going according to plan. Yes, it's all your fault. Steve Harrison is just a guy we know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After hearing the Tim Eldred episode, I've now started watching Star Blazers and Votoms, two show I never heard of while growing up. Excellent. Star Blazers is a difficult watch due to the cheesy dialogue and no nostalgia towards the show. I remember the Octopus Starstorm episode where Venture is piloting the Argo and Wildstar keeps making smart-ass remarks, and all I kept thinking is that Venture or the captain should reply, shut the fuck up, Wildstar, so Venture can concentrate on not killing everyone on the ship. I can only hope the next seasons are better. Votoms, on the other hand, I'm pleasantly surprised by. I kept avoiding this show due to the low rating on Netflix, but it must have been due to the sub-only release and dated animation. I had a question regarding cons. Now, I've only been to two cons, the SD Comic Con and another Sci-Fi Con. Don't even think I know what it was named. I didn't find either one memorable, but I've been thinking of giving it another try. But after Daryl's Truth segment, I get the feeling that I'm going to be in a group of kids half my age, unable to relate. That's then true. Geek Nights and Ninja Consultants con reviews, I begin to think that it's not that bad. I guess my question is, do you three still enjoy cons, even with all the things you have issues with? Then what type of con would you suggest to a new con-goer? A huge con like SD Comic Con, or to try find a smaller con? Alright, full disclosure, now that it's show 50, the truth segments are all fake. 
Yes. All right. I, I deliberately, deceptively edit things to sound far, far worse or invent situations that never actually happened. <laughs> there. That's why I'd call them the truth. They were yeah. totally, totally lies. I never How actually could you do such a thing? What, Gerald? I said I never actually paid those girls to kiss each other. Right. It was somebody else's dollar. But Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he, he don't, says... Don't use those truth segments. <laughs> the, the real barometric for how anime no. conventions are. That's sort of... Even the parts that are, like, real people, either, like Daryl said, they're deceptively edited, or those are the exceptions. That's kind of the bottom of the con barrel. It's not the whole con. But admittedly, if you go to a con and you're an older guy... You're going to hit the bottom of the barrel a couple of times at a con. Hmm. And True. I mean, typically every single con I go to, I have a really great time and I have a really awful time all at the same time. <laughs> I don't think my experiences are generally as bad as Gerald's or Daryl's because I think I'm, I hate everybody less, just a little bit less. Get off this podcast. <laughs> There's always going to be people at a con just like anywhere that are going to annoy you and that you're not going to be able to relate to. And I think the older you are, there are a lot of young people, so you may have more trouble finding other people that you're going to be able to talk to. It depends. Are you kids today with your hair and your clothes and your rock and roll music? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And one last review suggestion. Irresponsible Captain Tyler, if you haven't already reviewed it, this is one of my favorite series, and I really liked what Right Stuff did in the collector set. I Definitely like Tyler a, a lot, too. We, we were going to get to that at some point. Yeah, someday. <laughs> Do you have the newly released DVD the set? Ultra the Ultra Edition? No, I no. want that really badly. It comes with a novella of the original Yeah, novels. I'd like to get that, too. I like Star Blazers, but I understand what he's saying. I laughed a lot at some of the dialogue, too. Like My favorite thing is how everything has to be prefixed with the word space, so that you know that it's in the future and that it's in space, like space rocks, space turtles, space whatever. <laughs> it's it's pretty ridiculous. I like the soundtrack a lot. The, oh yeah, the, soundtrack the, is, the, is the still amazing. The inappropriate '70s porn music. Yeah, you probably met the Symphonics, but yeah, the '70s <laughs> porn groove is definitely the juxtaposition of the two. Yeah, are what make it's, the Matsumoto stuff like yeah. uh, Yamato yeah. and very good. Now, uh, one thing that Disco he talked Captain about in terms of cons, one thing that I'd like to get across is you've only been to sci-fi cons. And the great thing about anime conventions is that they are nothing like sci-fi or comic book conventions. Yeah, SDCC is like 40,000, 50,000 people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very, very industry run. Mm-hmm. Not really any sort of fan stuff going on right. at SDCC as far as events are concerned. It's now become the place basically to advertise your new movie coming out yep. or yeah. your upcoming comic and that sort of thing. Dealer's Room is colossally gigantic. There are toys and merchandise mm-hmm. made just to be sold at SDCC. Mm-hmm. It's not anything like what your typical Japanese cartoon convention is like. Yeah, nothing like it. First of all, you will never pay for an autograph at an anime convention. Yeah. Hopefully you will never have to. Hopefully we will never fall into that stupid bullshit hole that the sci-fi convention goers have gone and has fallen I think into. maybe the anime cons pay them like a flat appearance fee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably. In lieu of charging for autographs. I went to this one convention and, oh god, the one guy who played uh, Ren and Stimpy, um... Billy West. Billy West was there, and he was signing autographs for $25 an autograph. And then a month or two later, he was at an anime convention, and I got his autograph for free. Mm-hmm. And I paid no different entrance fee. 
or one con or the other. Yeah, it's a racket that got started a while back in sci-fi cons when people realized that they could make money off of it. Was that creation? I'm not absolutely sure, but I think that it was. Creation Con, for those who don't know, they were a company, a for-profit company. They'd make Star Trek conventions. Then yeah. eventually they started doing like other fandoms like Xena and all that jazz. But right. most people know them as doing Star Trek, Trek. conventions. Yeah. You think in your mind, what's the stereotypical Star Trek convention? That's the kind of show they'd put on. Yep. Once Star Trek kind of exploded and things started getting bigger because sci-fi previous to that wasn't really quite so huge... Mm-hmm. Um, I think once it got a lot bigger, they started to realize Exploit. that they could could make people pay. So, but what do you think? Do you think what? Well, you know, of course, it depends on your area. I recommend you well, go to available. animecons.com, find yeah. out what the local conventions are in your neck of the woods. Right. I agree. Go to their webpage, see the guests they've got. Even though I usually don't go to conventions yeah. just for guests, just to give you an idea of what's going to be happening mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. See if you can take a look at the events that are scheduled. A lot of times, yeah. cons don't put that up until very close right. to the convention. Right. Yeah. But. You'll see and get an idea of what's going to happen. Almost all of them have message boards Mm -hmm. where you can see and ask questions pertaining specifically to that convention. Yep. Because there's some differences, but they're kind of similar as well across the nation. Pretty much all of them have got the same stuff going on. I would, I don't know if I'm jumping in and, you know, Clarissa's going to say the same thing, but I would recommend going to a medium sized con. If you go to a very small con, oftentimes those turn into you have to make your own fun. And a too large con? Too large con? I don't know. That might be a bit overwhelming. Yes. Once again, Gerald has interrupted me to say exactly the same thing that I was about to say. Yeah, maybe not too small, but I'd recommend going to something that's a decent size in your area if there is anything at first. Because the thing is, if you go to something really huge like Anime Expo or Otakon, then they'll have guests that you might not be able to see at smaller conventions, sure, but the lines are going to be insane, and often you're going to run into that you just won't be able to do some stuff because the lines are too long and like yeah, basically, there's too many things overlapping, yeah. well, which is a problem at every con, but I think the bigger the con, but yeah, the for the bigger yeah. ones... It's almost all waiting in line. Yeah, on like Saturday at Otakon, it's either you get this person's autograph or you do everything else. Yeah, and pretty much. So go to the concert or yeah, everything so else. Yeah, so a or smaller one would probably be better because you'll get to do more stuff. And even though they might not have, say, Clamp or whoever there, you'll actually conceivably be able to talk to those people and get their autograph without right. spending the entire con doing it. And no, you don't have to cosplay to go to a con. In fact, no, you don't. We discourage it unless you are extremely good. So. <laughs> or unless you have a really good sense of humor about right. it. <laughs> the super serious people who are like posting on cosplay.com and monitoring every single contest winner at every con to make sure that that person wore and won the costume contest <laughs> at so-and-so con. You're not allowed to enter the contest here. Get out. Those people That's, need to uh, die. Those people, yes. Yeah, <laughs> Fuck those people. God. Yeah, let's. Uh, I got never one last email here. Again. This one is from our good buddy, the Moogle Master. Oh, oh yes, Mr. John Paul Rand. Here's what he writes: Subject: WTF! Exclamation point! Exclamation point! You get the idea. First of all, that streamlined dub for Dirty Pair Project Eden sounded like a fucking porno. Job done. And number two, <laughs> which is your favorite genre of anime? 
I'm guessing Daryl deep inside really loves furry anime because he's most likely a cause of furry. Clarissa seems to like the yaoi. When I really can't tell what Gerald likes, maybe I'm wrong on this, but that's what I can tell from your show. My favorite genre is sci-fi action and comedy. Is that supposed to make me mad? <laughs> Am I supposed to fly off the handle here and... You're not enraged off. at being called a furry, Daryl? You mm. hate furries. Uh, the thing is, this guy always writes emails, and two times at least I've mentioned on the comments on our website, which is www.animeworldorder.com, that this guy keeps sending us in pretty inane things, and I think he's heard that Gerald liked Dirty Pair a lot, and he liked that streamlined dub, so he's going to try and get under Gerald's skin by saying it. Sounds like a porno, and you know <laughs> it knows sort of does because of the that clips scene. that he ran where they yeah. were naked in a bathtub. Right. Speaking of of really awesome streamlined dubs, Gerald, are you going to be running clips from the awesome streamlined dub of Megazone Two Three? Perhaps I don't know. How the- <laughs> Might have to happen. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> So do we have favorite genres of anime? Well, I like <sighs> sci-fi action a lot, since a lot of the stuff that I review and a lot of my favorites are. Yeah, it would probably be fantasy, but there's not a whole lot of really good fantasy anime, I don't think. Like, there's Lotus War, mm-hmm. and then... We should review that at some point. Yeah, we, we should. should. I don't know, I can't think of a whole lot, so I guess I'd go with maybe sci-fi after that, although, I don't know... I like a little bit of everything. So. Yeah, I think I speak for everyone when it's, when it's like we don't limit ourselves to any genre. Yeah. It's just, I mean... I just well, exclude well, myself from certain genres. I just have a big problem choosing favorites of anything. Like, if you ask me what my favorite movie or my favorite band is, I almost never really have, like, one thing that I really like that much more than everything else. It's, yeah, I just have hmm. stuff I like, stuff I don't. Yeah. I think my favorite genre of manga, though, is the genre involving woman having sex on steering wheels uh, on boats. Anything else than that? Women tied to a rudder, yes. Yes, rudders, <laughs> road read, anything else than that. So That's a good genre. Yeah. There's entire anthologies about that. <laughs> you know, rudder it monthly. wouldn't surprise me if that was true. <laughs> rudder monthly, yeah. <laughs> Alright, so if you two would like to send us emails, our email address is animeworldorder at gmail.com. You can also call us up and send us some, some voicemails. Number is 206-666-4296. And as promised, we are just going to try and intersperse a few of these throughout the episodes from now on to mm-hmm. try and not have 60 unanswered voicemails in the box there. So if you send us a voicemail and it's not totally lunatic-wise, chances are it'll get played on the show. And if you're a real extreme lunatic, then you'll definitely get played. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. And if you're in more of a lunatic than is the good kind of lunatic, you can try sending us an audio message by going to the website and clicking on the audio link on our sidebar. What that does is it pops up a flash application in the event that you don't have a recording software or if you don't want to make that long distance call. If you got a microphone, you can just record it and it'll send it to us, maybe. So that's going to do it for the emails and stuff this week. I don't believe we've got news this week, right? Nothing really worth talking about. There's only one thing I've got that's worth talking about. I'm not going to put the news music on Mm -hmm. or anything like that. We just kind of forgot to mention it a couple weeks ago. TV's Patrick Macias has been tasked with the most deadly assignment of his career. Oh, man. There's a new magazine starting up called Otaku USA. 
if you don't know who Patrick Macias is, we interviewed him across several episodes right as the podcast began around show number five, then six, mm-hmm. then seven, he and eight. He's the most dangerous man alive. <laughs> TV's Patrick Macias or MD Macias. If you want to get an idea of what this magazine's going to be about, because, hey, why do we need Otaku USA magazine when we already got New Type and we already got Protoculture Addicts and Anime Insider? Go to YouTube and type Tokyo Eye. <laughs> Yes. That's I like E-Y-E, by the way. Tokyo E-Y-E. And check out some of these segments of Patrick going around Japan doing bizarre things. That's the kind of magazine this is going to be. There's just one problem that's going to keep this magazine from being the most kick-ass magazine ever. One thing is going to ruin it. That's the fact that... The website's really bad? Yeah, the website right now is a temporary placeholder website that does not reflect upon the content of the magazine. That is not at all how Patrick Macias writes. You can check out his blog by going to our website sidebar. But as far as the magazine itself goes, I think one thing is going to stop everyone from reading it. He needed somebody to write anime reviews for this magazine. And that somebody is us. The three of us, we are going to be writing the anime reviews for Otaku USA magazine. The first issue comes out in June And since we just got done telling everyone how we usually are kind of older fans who may not be quite up on the times, naturally, the stuff we have to review is newer stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is going to be great. (laughs) We'll see how it goes. But yeah, definitely, if you are entertained by our antics, do check this out. You'll actually be able to find it in bookstores, is my understanding. They're going to have it at Barnes & Noble and stuff like that. Buy the first issue, which will probably be the only issue ever, because we will ruin it like we ruin everything else. (laughs) Selling out corporate style. If you'd be interested in sponsoring us, email us. We'll work something out. Now that we've spent some time talking about hate speech, talking about all sorts of terrible subcultures Although and political... I, I don't know. Do they want to sponsor us since we're just a filthy bootlegging outfit? That's right. Uh, Clarissa is making a reference to the fact that I was sending emails out to various anime distributors and Right Stuff wrote me back and said... We can't support you because you guys encourage bootlegging on the Anime World Order podcast. And the reasoning for it was because I had links to torrents hmm. on the website. And all I got to say is that if I'm not going to get review copies from Right Stuff because I wanted people to see Ringing Bell, because I wanted people to you know, see some show that was never licensed or the rights have lapsed here in America or you can't get it otherwise. Rashomon, who's ever going to see that? Who's going to license that yeah. thing? So be it. I will accept not getting a copy of Two Heart to review. <laughs> That's that. I mean, there's going to be torrent links in this very episode because you can't get Do You Remember Love anywhere. So do all the copies of Giant Robo and you know, Crusher, Crusher Joe. Joe and everything that people bought because of us, do they not really exist then? No. I guess not. I mean, hmm. we got tons of emails from people saying we went and bought stuff. So be sure to pass that along. I actually got an email just a little while ago from Dan the Fan, who used to be on Otaku Generation, talking about how because of our review of Corpse Delivery Service, he went out of his way to track that one down and pick it up. And he said, pass along the word to Dark Horse because they should be sending us stuff. Yeah. Just to get it straight, we're not, I don't know if the word is... We're not like the people who are all about never pay for anime because all anime should be free. Our position is support stuff if it's there and it's a good release. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it kind of ticks me off that we try so hard to get people to go out and buy things, and we've gotten people to buy so many copies of these shows that they would never have bought otherwise, and then we're just kind of deriding as a bootlegging outfit. So, I don't know, maybe people, if you buy something from Right Stuff because of us, put down in the little, how did you uh, get to this thing? 
You got there from us. Leave a comment. We got sales going on, and I'll probably still mention a few of them because, yeah. hey, a lot of times they have good deals there, and I go where the deals are. If it's any consolation, we are getting review stuff from ADV. CPM was more than happy to send us stuff. Yeah. Bandai contacted us. And we promise, guys, that we're working on it. It's just right, yeah. Dark Horse. It takes we got a while stuff to cycle through everything. We've got more things that people have sent us here waiting to review that we haven't gotten around to because we're kind of slow to do things, doing only three things a week. Mm -hmm. But we promise we're going to get through and we're going to start making a dent in that as of show 51. Yep. And more giveaways and all that good stuff. As kind of a 50th anniversary giveaway, we've got these kind of interesting keychains that they look exactly like our logo. And our, our horribly shitty logo? <laughs> yeah, yes. that was made in MS Paint. We have one of these available. It's silver, and we're going to give it away. What kind of silver are we talking about? The kind that kills werewolves? Yes, exactly. That's the <laughs> AWO, protecting you from werewolves. Exactly. All right, so how do we enter this contest? We want you people to email us and tell us about a show that you checked out because of this show. We don't care if you liked the show that you watched or you hated it, but just tell us that you checked it out. And include your name and your mailing address. This one's open anywhere, since it's not like it's a company-sponsored thing. We'll mail it out wherever. Anywhere in the world, everywhere is open. So just tell us about it. We'll just take the entries that we get, and we'll do a random drawing of those entries we'll try and do that by maybe next episode or maybe we'll wait another episode depending on how many entries we get let's say two episodes then yeah since... give everybody time to... all right so we'll do the drawing once april rolls around yeah all right with that in mind let's uh, get to these reviews <laughs> hey this is mike tool first of all i'll tell you straight up your pod show is awesome and i am intensely jealous of your success and i consequently hate you all more than you could possibly imagine I'm calling in regarding show number 48, your Mazen Kaiser review. You were good enough to play the English-language Mazinger Z theme song, which we all know and love. Then you mentioned Transor Z, but made what is, in my opinion, a criminal omission. You failed to play the awesome, futuristic Transor Z theme song. This one. Minds of mortal men, the mightiest of machines. Isn't that good? Isn't that wonderful? I think it's amazing how a song recorded in 1985 can evoke images of a robot from 1972 smashing another robot, also from 1972. But I've always thought that song lacked a certain something. I don't know, maybe it's uh, song lyrics? His name is Transor Z, and he is really powerful. No, seriously, he's wicked powerful. He can shoot his goddamn fists. Whoa, how about that? I think I'm onto something. Anyway, I just wanted to share my thoughts with you, and I'm looking forward to future episodes. when you go up to an anime fan in you know, different generations and you ask them what their first anime was or what the anime was that started them on this path 
to being a crazy cosplaying 30-year-old virgin at an anime convention. So very oftentimes... Wait a second, I don't cosplay. <laughs> <laughs> neither do I, Daryl, neither do I. Some examples of entry shows are Star Blazers. An entire generation of fans got into anime Robotech. because of that. Yeah, Robotech, Bubblegum Crisis, Sailor Gun Moon, Sailor Moon, Gundam, Gundam, Gundam Wing. Wing. If we Pokemon, go back, I guess. Oh yeah, yeah well, Pokemon. Yeah. Eventually, most people. Yeah. If we go back a long way, there's still probably fans from Gigantor, Battle yeah. of Planets. There's yeah. of course Akira. Akira, oh, yeah. absolutely, Akira. is a big, big scroll. <laughs> Ghost, Ghost in the, in the Shell. Yurotsuka Doji is pains me. One of them that is sort of an entry drug, per se, that came out right around the time I started, maybe a little bit later, was Megazone 2-3 Part 1. And for very good reason. There's an entire generation of fans who, for them, Megazone 2-3 was their first anime. So much so that it seems that some of those fans even went on to make a movie about it. But more on that later. Now, a word of warning about this review. Megazone 2-3 is a rather important work in anime. And... In order for us to be able to discuss it, I'm going to have to spoil some pretty major points about this. I want to get it across that I really love this movie, and I hope that spoiling some of it won't dissuade people from checking it out. But in order to actually talk about it and its impact, and it has had a major impact, there's some major points that I actually have to cover. Megazone 2-3 is well known as being the second direct-to-video anime ever made, being beaten out a few months before its release by Space Station Dallas. Actually, that's incorrect. According to my research, it was the 22nd OAV ever released. Right, I thought earlier we'd said the second release was porno. Yes. In fact, OAVs like Greed, Area 88, and later The Fantastic Adventures of Yoko, and a whole ton of hentai all came out before it. However, this doesn't mean much, since this was the very first high-production-value OAV, and was the first to actually... Well, make some money. How high production are we talking about? Because Area 88 looked pretty good. Area 88 did. Um, of course, we really don't know any budgets about this. But this was in production for two years. Megazone 2-3 was originally supposed to be a sequel to the anime Genesis Climber Mospita. Mospita was the third part of the Robotech saga. And it was going to be a TV series, but partway through production, apparently something happened with the financing. And Omegazone 2-3 ended up quickly becoming Megazone 2-3 direct-to-video anime. It was also supposed to be Robotech the movie on the subject of following Mospita, which was the third part of the Robotech saga. Not supposed to be. It was, I it mean, was. but people would rather not remember that. Yeah. There's actually been word that there's another Megazone 2-3 TV series in production, but that was announced like a year ago, and I haven't heard anything about it, so who knows. Anyway, on to the actual story of Megazone 2-3, and... I'm kind of going into a lot of detail about this. It's kind of for a good reason, though. So just kind of bear with me. Megazone 2-3 is about this guy named Shogo Yahagi. And he is a rather cool guy for 1985. I should really emphasize that this movie is set in modern-day Japan. And modern-day Japan is, in fact, the mid-80s in all its fashion and stylistic glory. Leg warmers. This is probably the most 80s anime ever. Anyway, Shogo is riding through Shibuya traffic on his motorcycle, and he's being chased by police when he nearly runs into this girl on the street. He finds out that this girl is named Yui, and he quickly becomes friends with her. During the same day, he meets up with a friend of his named Shinji, and he finds out that his friend Shinji has got this amazing-looking bike that is made by this company named Bahamut, or Bahamut, however they want to pronounce it. And as soon as Shinji says this, there's a bunch of men in black that, that appear and suddenly start shooting at Shogo and Shinji, 
Shogo manages to escape with this amazing looking bike while his friend is shot to death. Strangely enough, with all that happened, Shogo doesn't find any news at all about these guys that attacked them or his friend. And in fact, when he calls the job that his friend was working at, he finds that Shinji has moved to America. Very strange. So he assumes that there's a massive cover-up surrounding this bike, and he's going to make it his job to expose the bike to the world. The best way to do that in 1985 Japan is to go on the most popular show at the time, which is an idol show, hosted by Japan's most popular idol, Eve. And so he calls in and tries to show the bike to her live on air, but suddenly is cut off. And while Shogo thinks he's talking to Eve, everyone in fact just sees Eve joking about him and taking more calls. This is actually kind of significant. All this does is tip off the men in black to Shogo's location, and through a really fantastic highway chase, Shogo finds that the bike can transform into a mech. Now, to skip a bunch and to get to kind of the point of this, during some scouting for filming locations with one of Yui's roommates, Shogo accidentally ends up in this incredibly gigantic, massive underground city right underneath Tokyo. He meets this head of this faction of the military, and believe it or not, none of these were really spoilers, but the major spoiler is right what I'm about to say. Shogo finds out that the world they are living in is not actually reality. It's not really Earth. In fact, everyone is actually living on a giant spaceship, and every aspect of life is controlled by a massive computer. In fact, the year they're living in is not 1985, but it's roughly about 500 years later, and this is the result of a massive war that took place on Earth that forced all humans off of it. Hmm... Does that sound familiar to something else? I don't know. Nah. nah never heard of that one. Yeah, th- there's a reason why I spoiled that much of Megazone 2-3. There's actually a lot more after that point, so don't think that I've just spoiled the entire show. Yeah, this is only part one. Yeah, this right? is only part one, and it's only like the beginning of part one. It's basically the setup. And I'm just going to turn on Steve Harrison's Conspiracy Corner right now. <laughs> and say, this is... One of the bigger controversies in anime, the similarity between Megazone 2-3's storyline and the storyline of the Matrix films. I had always heard but could never confirm for myself, so it might be completely false, that an early script for the first Matrix film involved a fight where Neo and Agent Smith were going to fight throughout a city in transforming motorcycles. Really? Hmm. That might be total bullshit because it seems very out of place from the rest hmm. of the Matrix. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I had heard that said... Mm. I'm not going to go and say, yeah, that was totally there and they cut it out, but people have been talking about this for a while. Yeah, email us if they know about that. Then again, I mean, well, with the history of sci-fi, there's been tons of stories <laughs> of virtual reality. Right. And, and the concept is nothing very new. I mean, it's like no. philosophy 101. Right. But the fact is that the Wachowski brothers are very well-known admitted anime fans. Mm-hmm. And they are of the perfect age that they would have come into anime watching this show. They're in their 40s or so. so about. about. I remember reading an interview with them where someone flat out asked them, have you yes. ever seen this movie? They said no. They said no. I read that same interview. And they said, oh, this sounds really cool. I call bullshit on them. I think that they saw this. And I think they said, let's take this and combine it with Ghost in the Shell. Mm. I mean, they've admitted to seeing Ghost in the Shell. Yeah. So I don't call any bullshit uh, on that. But I think that it's probably just a defense thing. Because if they admit that they've seen it, then that probably invites a lawsuit. Right. Other people have sued them on much shakier grounds. Right. So they probably just want to say, no, we haven't seen it, just to avoid the legal issue. Perhaps. I mean, it's not yeah. going to stop me calling bullshit on them for this. Right, right. It's, it's kind of annoying, because I was the only person in the movie theater when I went to see that in 99 
that came out saying, did I just see, like, a high-budget Megazone 2-3? I don't know. Let's remember that, as we can learn from even a monkey can draw manga, the <laughs> essence of manga is stealing. Yeah. So really, I guess, the Wachowskis are, are becoming real. Are embodying the essence. Yes, they are. <laughs> All right, we've been talking. That's one conspiracy corner, one long-running argument. Mm. Long-running argument, fan wank number two. Which is cooler, the Garland or Kaneda's bike from Akira? Um, I'm going with the Garland just because, you know, you can transform into a mech in that. See, I don't know. I'm torn because I want to say I like the look of and the design of Kaneda's bike better. I agree. Right. I, I, I like the, the visual hand, look of it much more. But yeah, I on do. the other, yeah, I think the Garland is kind of ugly. In bike yeah, form. I, I agree. But then again, the Garland does. It turn does into so a robot. much more than yes. so. It's like which one would I want to have at my side in a firefight? In short, I think I want to have Kanada's bike that will turn into a robot. I, yeah. I would agree. I think but that would be the ultimate. If I had to choose between one or the other, I would go with the Garland. And then once you start factoring in ride armor from Mosspeed, it goes out out of control. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. Conspiracy theory corner over. Megazone 2-3 is an excellent anime, and I highly recommend it. However, this does not come with a number of very, very significant caveats. <laughs> this movie is the most 80s anime ever made. Oh god, it's Everything, so 80s. Every single thing about this is totally indicative of the times. And You'll know within the first two minutes. And if it's you probably... are like Erica Friedman, and you do not like... The 80s embodied in shows. And stop listening to this podcast. This This is probably the closest thing that anime has to Miami Vice. Not the Colin Farrell, Jamie Foxx Miami Vice. No, no, no. The real one. The real one. It's also really great in that the scenes of the city and the people walking around feels very earthy in that you can kind of feel like these animators kind of walked around in 1984 or whatever, sat down and just drew what Shibuya in 1984 and 1985 looked like. This, coupled with a really awesome soundtrack, inspires memories of the 80s, let's say. Yeah, okay. And if you have a problem with something that has got so many memories of the 80s in it, well, first of all, you're incredibly lame. So, (laughs) just because something is extremely representative of the times in which it was made, does that mean that it's worth watching today? I think that that's an absolute yes in this case, because it's still a really interesting, exciting, and really pretty movie to look at. Especially when the guy's head just gets crushed against the wall there. The action sequences in it are very well done, and they're still exciting to watch. The movie has an excellent staff behind it. This movie was directed, well, this OAV was directed by Noboru Ishiguro, who happened to be working on Star Blazers and Macross, and would go on to work on Legend of the Galactic Heroes. It had character designs by Toshihiro Hirano, who is my favorite bad director. And the design of Eve was handled by Haruhiko Mikimoto, who is the character designer for Macross and URL and Orgas and a lot of good sci-fi anime of the 80s. Although it's not really accurate to say that he was the best character designer of the 1980s. That belongs to Kenichi Sonoda. Mikimoto is, in fact, the best character designer ever in anime. So, it also has a lot of these other people that would go on to be pretty big names in anime, like Shinji Aramaki, Hideki Kakenuma, Yasunomi Umetsu for maybe, you know more notorious reasons, Uh, (laughs) Hiroyuki Hoshiyama, who just died like a few weeks ago, in fact. This was the cream of the crop. And now the other major problem with Megazone 2-3 Part 1 is that it doesn't have much of an ending. In fact, 
since this was originally meant to be a TV series, this OAV really feels like almost like the first five or ten episodes of a show. The entire show, the entire like 80 or 90 minutes, is the setup, and then suddenly things start to happen, and then it ends. The parts that follow part one get progressively worse and worse. So knowing that, I have the feeling that some people might just give it a miss based on that, and in a way I don't blame you, but even with that major flaw, I still think that Megazone 2, 3, Part 1 is totally worth the watch. As for the release itself, Megazone 2, 3 has been released in America a couple of times. Daryl was talking about this before, the most notorious time was when it was edited together with Southern Cross and released as Robotech the Movie. I thought that that was only screened, but apparently it was an actual release, and it got released yeah, in, in, Texas. Foreign, in foreign countries, and it was actually really popular in some foreign countries as well. But in general, that's considered a, just a total disaster by anime fandom, and a lot of fans just don't even like to think about it, who actually remember it. Mark! We share a common bond. Becky! Becky! All humanity. We can't wait for tomorrow. It was again later released by Streamline Pictures as Megazone 2-3, straight up, and it was dubbed in a very traditional Streamline dub. It was released on a very long out-of-print DVD. This was one of the earliest anime DVDs that was released. Most recently, there was a release by ADV Films. That release by itself is kind of worth talking about. ADV actually released the show with a commentary track with Janice Williams, Matt Greenfield, and David Williams. Who are the main head people at ADV. This is just the sort of extra that I think really works with this show. The idea behind this commentary track was that it was going to be the old fogey commentary track. It's basically them talking for the entire movie all about Megazone in this old school perspective. And it's all about how they got into anime, and it's kind of a mini history lesson about anime fandom in America. And so I think that for that commentary track alone, it's worth picking up. It's not... One of those other ADV commentary tracks where they get the dub director and some dub actor to sit there and talk about, oh, how, look how cool this is. This is actually a worthwhile extra, in my opinion. The best part is, is that Megazone 2-3 is dirt cheap right now. I mean, Well, I checked on ADV's website. Currently, it's there for $25. ADV has a sale for every arbitrary holiday there is. Yes. And every single time, Megazone 2-3 is always part of the sale. Yes, and you can buy it there for like five bucks with box or something like that right it's incredibly cheap there are three parts in all part two is different from part one but some people still like it part three mm -hmm. is generally agreed upon as garbage part three is in fact so unbelievably bad that i watched it and i must have blanked out because i don't remember a single thing about that and other than things... the hard on <laughs> no i don't even remember that that's how much i blanked out yeah, that is another thing, is that Part 1 was made in 1985, Part 2 was made in, like, 1988, and Part 3 was made in 1991 or so, and they're all totally different staffs, totally different looks. The progression is just so strange. Like, one character, supposedly six months passes between Part 1 and Part 2, and this guy gains 150 pounds of just muscle or something. 
there's no explanation for it. So a lot of people actually saw part two as a very badly dubbed English lesson. Megazone 2-3 is more than just something that I think is historically interesting as being an early example of OAVs and all that. I think it is very entertaining, totally worth it, and you can get it for really, really cheap. Mm. If you can find the other parts, I don't know. I think part two is worth getting part three. It's kind of hard to have part one and part two and not get part three. Yeah. But part three It's that is, empty box psychology. <laughs> yeah. But part three is terrible. In fact, I actually asked, <laughs> I asked Matt Greenfield, I was chatting with him about Odin, and he said the only thing that I've seen that is worse than Odin is Megazone 2-3 part three. Oh. And he released that himself. <laughs> yeah, I bought all of Megazone 2-3 on one of ADV's Christmas sales. I bought for them like all as they came $6 out. $6 yeah, so did a I. Disc. But yeah, I bought it on one of their Christmas sales for like six bucks a disc. So yeah. you might yeah. have to wait a little while for a sale to come around again in order to get it for that cheap. But it shouldn't put you back that much. Yeah. I mean, I bought it as it came out. and I'm quite happy to pay $25 for part one. So mm. part two and part three, that really depends. Well, not part three. Um, <laughs> Dave Merrill's a big advocate for part two. Did he give a reason for that? He did. He wrote up a review for it. Okay. About it. So if we, we will, can find that, we'll put a link up to it. Or maybe we'll save that for when we review part two, since all of these can sort of be reviewed individually, since they're so different. Yeah, mm. story is... I don't even know why it's called part two, part three, because it's so totally a different thing. Yeah, mm. so... There's yeah, maybe one recurring character among all three parts. There's three. There's okay. the main character, his girlfriend, and Eve. And Eve is the only thing that looks the same throughout the entire series. That's because if you mess with Harihiko Mikimoto's character designs... God will smite you. Um, <laughs> more than, you know, 80s flashback. Buy it, it's worth it. Almighty Goobrazilla and the Greatest Movie Ever podcast present How Not to Treat Your Fellow Podcasters. Remember, Daryl, when I promised to kill you last? That's right, Paul! You did! I lied. <laughs> www.fearthegoobrazilla.com The Greatest Movie Ever podcast. A podcast so awesome, we eat other podcasters. Hey guys, this is Aaron over at the uh, Weekly Anime Review. Hey, just got done listening to show number 49, 
And I just wanted to comment that Clarissa sounds really great now with her new mic set up. Definitely an upgrade from the tin can and string she's been using. But yeah, great podcast as always. Dirty Pair, gotta love it. I picked up both the thin pack of the movies and the OVAs at Best Buy for maybe 10 bucks a piece or something. So if anyone out there is looking for it, keep your eyes open. This was a while back, but it's a really good deal. So keep up the good work. Love the podcast as always. Catch you later. take a break from the 80s nostalgia to talk about a more recent show. Yeah, I know, but we'll get back to it. There's more leg warmers in store. Um, This is a series from about 2002, but for some reason, this was a show that doesn't seem to have been noticed by everybody. It's kind of largely overlooked, which is sad because I think that it's a really, really good show and deserves a lot more attention. And it's kind of interesting also because this series is similar in a lot of ways to another series that I really like and that we will do a review of at some point, which is Revolutionary Girl Utena. But while Utena seems to have been fairly popular and gotten a lot of attention, this one kind of slipped under the radar, I guess. So I'm going to talk about this and hopefully more people will go check this out and hopefully you'll all like it because it's a totally awesome show. It's called Princess Tutu and you know that it's awesome because it is a magical girl show, but not only is it a magical girl show, it is a ballet magical girl show where people fight using the power of ballet. Now, how can you not watch that? Like, how is that not just an awesome show? Unfortunately, it's not like they do ballet and laser beams fire out from well, the no. sky. <laughs> That's it's true. more akin to like the vocal battles in, say, Key the Metal Idol, only yes. weird. Mm. should review Key the Metal Idol someday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess somebody should do that. Now, this series, I'm talking about the anime because this is one of those series where the anime came first and the manga was done afterwards. And I've heard that it's not quite as good, which is generally the case with these sorts of things. The manga, I, I believe, is fairly different. So I'm focusing on the anime here. Like I said, this is from 2002, and the original creator for the concept for this is Ikuko Ito, who is mostly a character designer for other series. Um, she worked on stuff like Magic Users Club and did a lot of work on Sailor Moon. I think that there's probably something to that, which I think people probably know that Kunihiko Ikuhara, the guy who directed Revolutionary Girl Utena, worked on Sailor Moon. And then he went on and did Utena, which was this crazy show. And I guess after he did that, some other people were like, hey, that was really cool. I'm going to try and do something like that. Because Ikuhara vanished off the face of the earth after that. (laughs) No, he came back to do Gunbuster 2. That's That's right. Yeah. I think there was some other shows that also were kind of similar to Utena that came afterwards that I can't remember at the moment. But Princess Tutu, I think, definitely seems like it took some inspiration from that. 
So Ito did the original concept, and then the series direction was done by Junichi Sato, who um, people probably recognize a bunch of stuff that Sato's worked on, like Gegege no Kitaro, Kaleidostar, Kerogunso, Magic Users Club. He also uh, worked on Sailor Moon. That was mostly his directing stuff, and also did storyboards on a ton of stuff, worked on storyboards boards for Zeta Gundam and Ava and Escaflone. And... So he's basically been around for a really long time. Yeah. They had a bunch of different people that wrote screenplays and scripts for different episodes, including um, Chiaki J. Kanaka, who people who listen to the Lane review will recognize as the writer for Lane. And Kanaka worked on some other stuff like Armitage the Third. Big O, right? Technolize, which you'll get to someday. Devil Lady. Bubblegum Crisis 2040, yeah! A lot of um, things that just have bad endings. So, I think it's got a pretty good set of people working on it behind the scenes, and I think that that shows. Now, I mentioned that Princess Tutu is a magical girl show, which it is, and I mentioned that it has a lot to do with ballet. But saying that is sort of like saying that Revolutionary Girl Utena is a show about a girl looking for a prince who sword fights a bunch of people. It doesn't really capture what the show is actually about. Now, I might not be able to say too much about this show because a lot of things will spoil things that happen later in the series, and because this is a really well-done show and and it's not very old, and I think some pretty awesome stuff happens. I don't really want to totally spoil it for people, so I'm going to have to leave some stuff out, but hopefully I'll be able to give people a pretty good idea of what goes on. Now, the basic plotline focuses around a girl named Ahiru, which means duck. And the reason for that is that Ahiru actually literally was a duck. There was a man named Drosselmeyer who, as it mentions, I believe, in the intro to the series, had written stories, and he had written a particular story about a prince who fought an evil crow. The prince shattered his heart in order to seal the raven away. So the prince has no emotions anymore. He has no heart. And Drosselmeyer died before he finished the story. And Drosselmeyer takes this duck and he gives this duck a pendant, which turns the duck into a girl, Ahidu. And she becomes a student at this ballet school. The necklace allows her, when she needs to, to transform into Princess Tutu, who is the magical girl. And Princess Tutu needs to gather the missing pieces of the prince's heart and restore his heart to him. And that's sort of the basic setup. I mentioned the ballet connection. There's definitely a lot of stuff about ballet in this. Not only are the characters ballet students, and Princess Tutu obviously is a ballerina, and she fights. And they're not really fights. It's more that because it's pieces of the prince's heart, she dances with people who have the uh, prince's heart pieces and those emotions that go with them. And these emotions get highly exaggerated because of the heart shards. And so she dances with the people in order to sort of exercise those emotions and draw out the piece of the prince's heart so that she can give it back to him. But there's a lot more than that. A lot of music and ballet sequences from different ballets, like especially the Nutcracker and Swan Lake get used. The costume that Princess Tutu wears and the costume that her adversary, Princess Kreia, wears are based off of costumes from Swan Lake. Drosselmeyer is the name of a character from the Nutcracker. 
So there's all kinds of different sort of ballet references and themes included in the show. And also fairy tale themes are another big, big part of it. As you can probably kind of tell, though, there was the prince and he fights the raven and shatters his heart in order to lock the raven away. And there's Princess Tutu and there's Princess Kreia. And then uh, there's also a knight who is, uh, along with the prince, who is also a student at the ballet school where Ahiru goes. He's a student named uh, Mytho. There's uh, another student, Fakir, who we see interacting with Mytho a lot, who seems to be pretty kind of negative at first. He's sort of an antagonist. And he takes the position of sort of the knight in the story. And you have another student, Ru, who is the most advanced ballerina in the school. And she is Mytho's girlfriend. And she is, as you find out, Princess Kreia. So all of these people are involved in the same sort of area and circle. So you have your sort of fairy tale cast and this very fairy tale story. But what I like about this series and what makes it similar to Utena is that just like Utena isn't really so much about the basic plot of what happens as it is about playing around with fairy tales and gender roles and all these sorts of tropes. And Princess Tutu is kind of similar in that way, in that Princess Tutu is not just a fairy tale. It's actually sort of about stories, about fairy tales on sort of a meta level. It's hard to really explain how that is without spoiling some things, so it's awkward to give examples. I mentioned that the existence of Drosselmeyer, who is the person who wrote the story of The Prince and the Raven, and as you can obviously see from the fact that Prince as Tutu exists and needs to restore the heart to the prince, the characters in the story are real. So as you can see, there's sort of a, a manifestation of the outside of the story, the person who writes the story and the structure of the story. And there's actually a lot about Princess Tutu later on that deals very much with the nature of stories and the roles that people play in stories and such. God, it's hard to not spoil. Yeah, the the, this. Sh- like, the the shonen equivalent of Princess Tutu is that episode of Scryed where the one guy's altar is that he has that book and he writes oh. people and they play roles according <laughs> yeah. to what his he's deemed them to do. Yes, that's actually a pretty good that's comparison. That's what Princess yeah. Tutu is. Yeah, except with yeah less punching and more ballet. Princess Tutu isn't quite so much about gender roles as Utena is, where it's it's more about sort of the prescribed roles that people have in stories. But there's sort of messing around with your preconceptions about who these people are. And there's sort of just as much focus on the question of people sort of defying the role that's sort of set out for them and defying your expectations and changing a lot. Like, I think something that makes Tutu stand out a lot is the character development and how well-rounded everybody sort of ends up. Everybody gets a chance, sort of, I don't want to say any specifics again, not to, so, not to spoil anything, but everybody that's a major character sort of gets to defy their roles or switch up their roles and play different roles as different parts of the story happen, and it works really well. One thing that's important to mention about Princess Tutu, I think, is the nature in which it was released here in America. Mm. This series was uh, licensed and released here in the U.S. by ADV Films. 
And yeah, it didn't really get a lot of attention for whatever reason, despite the fact that it's a really good show and that Utena, as far as I know, did well. But this series, which, as I said, has a lot of similarities, just somehow didn't really get noticed. That always confused me, too. Here's my take on it. The initial 13 episodes of Utna are rather similar to Sailor Moon, and when they were released, mm-hmm. it says from the maker of Sailor Moon. Right. And it came out shortly after, like, Sailor Moon was kind of, you know, in a downswing here in America, and a lot of the people kind of moved over to that, not realizing how bizarre that show had become, <laughs> because it was quite mm, some yeah. time between those first 13 episodes coming out and then the rest of the show coming out. Right. And it was Years. sort of bizarre in the first 13, but not like it. But not to the level that it became. Whereas Princess Tutu, it kind of starts off a little more out there than say, Utna's early episodes were. Plus Mm. the fact that I think a lot of that Sailor Moon crowd had probably kind of moved on. Maybe they weren't around to pick stuff up. Because you think it makes perfect sense. Everybody I know when Princess Tutu came out, everyone who was crazy for Utena was watching that show as well. Because it's like, oh, this is the new show that's kind of like Revolutionary Girl Utena. But then when it came out, he here, it was like a battle for it all to even come out because I mean yeah. nobody was buying it and people were um, like, "Well, yeah, it did really badly." Yeah, yeah, there were some issues with its release. They won't talk about it at ADV, but there was like this one time where there was like four months or five months between these two discs. Yeah. Um, I don't know. And wasn't what the story it at a is. really bad place too? I yeah. Think. The, the yeah. Way this, just to remind everyone, like this is about as long as Utna was. It's maybe Utna was made thirty nine episodes. Two twos around that. Maybe twenty six. Is it really twenty six? I thought it was well, like thirty eight or thirty nine. Okay, it's both. The original TV broadcast was thirty eight episodes, which was thirteen half hour episodes, and there were twenty six fifteen minute episodes. When they released it on DVD, the fifteen minute episodes were combined together into 30-minute episodes. All right, that makes more sense. So on DVD, it came out to 26 episodes, but it was 38 the way it was originally broadcast. So yeah, I'm trying to remember where it was that that big gap was, because there's actually, I mentioned that there's these 13 half-hour episodes, and then they did these 26, 15-minute episodes. Basically, the first 13 episodes are sort of almost like that could be the whole series. They're sort of an ending at those 13 episodes. And theoretically, you could stop watching the show there. And then the next group of episodes after that sort of takes that ending and then says, no, we're not actually going to stop it here. And then takes it even farther. And I'm not really sure if I can describe exactly what the difference is between those two seasons. I've heard, Probably I've not, because you'd have to explain, like, this well, is kind of what happens in 13. Right. And then... I've, I've heard people describe it as that the ending to the first group is the happy ending, and the ending to the whole thing is the glorious ending. That at 13, there's kind of like your standard sort of ending that you might expect. And then after that is when everybody says, you know what? Screw it. We're not going to do it this way. We're not going to play out what we're supposed to play out. We're going to do this instead. It's going to be better. Yeah, I think it's better. But yeah, this release just didn't do very well. Like, I mean, I think it's a pretty good release. Like, all the DVDs have reversible um, slipcovers. So there's, like, one type of artwork on one side and the other type on the back. So you can kind of choose which to display. And I think both sides are pretty cool. And um, it seemed like a, a good release, but... 
Yeah, just somehow, maybe it was like you said, that that Sailor Moon audience that had moved to Utena either just had moved on, or maybe people just didn't know about it? I think one of the things that might have done it in is the art style. It's very stylized in sort of a way that's not very similar to the Sailor Moon and Utena kind of artwork. How so? Ikuko Ito's character designs are not really that strange. I don't know. I don't know if I'd agree with that. I don't know how to explain it, but it's different when you look at, say, how in Sailor Moon and Utna everyone is kind of very... I guess they're older, it seems. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. Well, Ahiru is 13... Actually, some of the characters, I think, look younger than they are, because like, I think that like Fakir is like 17, but he doesn't actually look that much older than... Yeah, and when I think about Sailor Moon, I think of girls who are 13 or whatever who don't look that at all. Hmm. And same with Utna. Juri is right in high school, but she doesn't look like that at all. Right. I think that Ahiru is very definitely drawn and acted as a very sort of awkward young girl, especially because since she was a duck... Who was turned into a person you can definitely hear that in the way that her voice actress does the performance like she has this kind of weird like kind of scratchy sound to her voice and she makes these like pseudo quack noises when she's startled or whatever yeah she's very kind of clumsy and awkward now of course when she turns into princess tutu it's she's very different but yeah i don't know if that'd really do it because that's kind of one of the staples of the magical girl genre overall yeah Right. Kind of have that sort of unassuming girl, and then they transform, and then... Right. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's kind of tough for me to figure out exactly what it is that did it. I don't really understand it, but... I mean, I know that when this came out, I had seen a few episodes of it, but I actually didn't watch the entire show until recently. Because it was one of those shows that I watched the beginning of it, and I thought it was really cool. I was like, hey, this is really neat. I don't know if I really knew yet that it was something quite like Utena. I think I had noticed some similarities with it. They both sort of open in very similar sort of fairy tale kind of things. So yeah, I think I noticed it, but I don't think I really... I hadn't watched very far in, so I didn't really get to when really awesome crazy shit starts going down. And it was one of those that I liked, but again, it was a series that I enjoyed, but I got sidetracked from watching it, and I never really got around to finishing it until recently. And I'm glad that I did, and I wish that I had had watched it all earlier, because it's definitely really good. And maybe people that didn't know about it or passed it over the first time around, I think you should go check it out. It's not going to be easy, though. They don't really sell this in stores because, like you said, it wasn't that popular even when it was newly coming out. Right, and it's a few years old now, so... Yeah, you probably won't be able to pick up in, like, Best Buy, but you should be able to find it online. No. So, yeah, I I really highly recommend this. See, hmm. What? You hate the show, I know, but is there anything other than that? Well, I was going to say, I mean, I guess I'm the differing opinion on that, then. I mean... I watched this when it came out in Digisub format, and I was like, you know, didn't really catch me, and then, then I watched more of it, and I never really got into the show. It and never... and what, were your, what was your opinion on Utna, just for reference? I liked Utna a lot. Interesting, um, because usually the way I reckon... You haven't even watched all of Utna, have you? I've watched the first 13, and I liked what I saw in the 13. All right. It shows See, you completely can't even, different. Yeah, you can't even give an opinion on Utena if you haven't seen past the first season. Yeah. I'm not allowed to say that I like those 13 episodes. You well, are. you're not allowed to say that you like the show as a whole, because it goes 
to totally crazy places. I said I like those 13 episodes mm-hmm. that I saw. Well, here's my take on it. For people who liked all of Utna, who liked when it went all crazy, then Princess Tutu, you'll yeah. probably like Princess Tutu as well, because that's usually how I recommend the show to people. Yeah. If you liked watching Revolutionary Girl Utna and you watched it throughout it, you'll like Princess Tutu because it's also that weird kind of stuff going on. Yeah. And it's not just like, ooh, like, look how crazy we are weird. Like, it's smart weird. And so if you like stuff that's smart, that's got kind of sort of a postmodern type of attitude and feel like Utna, that really kind of plays around with things, definitely, I think you'll like the show a lot. Yeah, mm. just we just got to be careful with our use of the term postmodern. Yeah, cause, that's... Because Man, yeah. four yeah. years in film school. It's like, you're misusing that word. What yeah, well, I, I don't know. I can't think of a better term for I can't either. But well, yeah, that's all I can know. say is I didn't enjoy it. All right. Yeah, well, Gerald doesn't like girly shows, so... It is very girly. Very girly indeed. I'm of the opinion that it's the... I can't believe that you would not like it just because of that, but... Well, uh, no, I, I'm, just, I'm thinking I never, it's so I never girly got... that it goes all the way around and it's manly. I didn't see it that way. <laughs> it, it, it was... Like it seems there weren't to me, enough women getting raped in it for Jill. It, to like it, it seemed to me like it appealed to a lot of the fantasies of like, or I guess appealed to a lot of the sensibilities in in I don't know. It, it just seems like that. Unlike I don't know, like maybe Get a Robo does to guys. That just seemed to me what I was getting from it. I mean, I was giving it a good shot. I gave it twenty episodes to to pull me in, and it. Never I don't. Really th- did I don't that. know. Judging by your reactions when we watched even the first few episodes, it didn't seem like to me like you ever really gave it fair consideration. What do you? mean i get 20 episodes of paying attention to the show look i watched your reactions i was there watching it with you i know what your reactions were i don't believe that you really gave it a fair shot i gave it as you seemed you seemed to snort at that show from the very beginning yeah, I can usually tell if Gerald doesn't like a show because he makes a lot of noises. From the very beginning, weird. you were rolling your eyes about stuff. Like, oh, there were pretty boys in it. And, oh, Mytho doesn't wear pants sometimes. I and, don't care about that stuff. It's just that yeah, I never oh, got I never got absorbed bullshit. in the characters ever. Bullshit. I never got absorbed in the characters. They just, just The show just never clicked with me. So maybe what's trying to be conveyed here is that it's not like how most modern magical girl shows are made now in that they design it for the four to nine-year-old girl audience as well as the 30-year-old men audience. Maybe this is just the girl audience only. I don't know. I don't know. I think this show is a little higher level than yeah, the typical, I'm too like, really immoral for that, audience. So. Yeah, so I don't know. The only way people will know is if they judge for themselves. Yeah. Hi, this is Richard Dunn. I was just noticing that Clarissa and Gerald seem to have some passive-aggressive thing going on. Like, Clarissa tells Gerald that he's not a man and other kind of very, you know, not half-jokey, but kind of very derogatory stuff. And then Gerald dismisses Clarissa during correct many corrections of his pronunciation, which is bad, but still, you know, it's not, you know, he, does, he doesn't need to dismiss her that way, because it's more like he's trying to get back at her for him getting back at him for being him dismissive. So it's like a vicious circle, almost. Yeah. Shouldn't they, like, make up or something? Or make out? Okay, thank you. Bye. You can't win a war by singing a song. It's stupid.
right, I've put this off for far too long. I've made everyone else go ahead of me because I was afraid. But for the last segment of the show, I'm going to talk about something that is very near and dear to my own heart. Mm-hmm. Mine too. Yep. I think all three of us. Gerald mentioned in Megazone 2 3 Part 1 that it was the most 80s anime he'd ever seen as far as music, as far as style and stuff like that goes. But for my money's worth, what I'm about to talk about is probably the ultimate embodiment of the spirit of what anime was and what anime meant to people in the 1980s. And that's Super Dimensional Fortress Macross Do You Remember Love? I think it's even more than that. I think this is kind of what anime is to people. Yeah, this is the reason that I watch anime. Well, I think it's what anime is to people of a certain generation. Of a certain generation, of course. But probably not people anymore. Not anymore so much, but I'm talking about people my age who came in around Robotech, people who came in around then. This is what they're all about. And this is another movie from 1984. We're talking 23 years ago, so I'm Mm -hmm. gonna spoil some parts of this movie because you've either seen this by now (laughs) or you'll never see it. You've never heard of it. Statute of Limitations is Statute of Limitations advance warning. I'm not gonna waste everyone's time by explaining the story of what Macross is necessarily other than kind of the brief summary because that's ultimately what this movie is right macross do you remember love is the story of the entire first 26 episodes of the original macross tv series which is to say the original intended running length shortened down and quickly summarized in one film and continuity wise it's a little different from the tv show and the way it's explained is Mm -hmm. this It's a movie set within the universe. That is to say, the characters of Macross could conceivably go and watch this movie themselves. And then they'd be all pissed off because they'd be like, that's not how it happened. Wait, I don't look that way. My brain doesn't pulsate. (laughs) This is bullshit. (laughs) Because it's the follow-up to Macross, which the dub was made into the first third of Robotech, Mm-hmm. And Robotech was a show that ushered in a huge, huge wave of fans. Mm-hmm. This was the holy grail of anime for a long, long time. I actually don't really think that there's anything today that is equivalent to how important this movie was to those fans then. Even though it's from 23 years ago, it is still one of the most beautiful looking animated films I've ever seen Mm -hmm. and that's kind of the defining feature and element of macross to me it's always been this absolutely painstaking amount of detail that's put into everything i mean whenever i watch macross and this is unique to just that franchise i stop and i go through scenes frame by frame Mm -hmm. because every bullet every missile Mm -hmm. every single thing in the background is animated and blocked out. If someone does something, maybe they dodge something in a fight, you can stop and see exactly a full set of complex maneuvers showing exactly how that was done. And you got to remember, this was during a time there were no DVDs or anything. Mm -hmm. It's not like how David Fincher, he knows, oh, people are going to be watching my movies on DVD later, so I'm going to put in all these details that you aren't going to see in the theater. You can only see it when you get home. And the reason 
why this is is because the animators wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. This was truly a labor of love in that there are people yeah. who sat down. I think down, you can feel that. See it's that sort there of like someone, a love letter to Macross. It's, it's a, a love, love letter, letter to, to something else. To anime. To yeah. adventurous spirit. Almost. I can sum it up in two words. There's a term that's used by fans. Newer fans may have never heard of this term in their life. The term is the Itano Circus. There was this guy named Ichiro Itano. Yes. And he was an animation director, and as an animation director, he is incredibly awesome. I mean, not just Macross. He worked on every Macross anime other than Macross 7, but he also worked on the Daikon animations. Mm-hmm. Yep. Megazone 2-3, which Gerald just talked about. The original Mobile Suit Gundam. And mm-hmm. the term itself, for those who don't know, it basically refers to the use of swarms upon swarms of missiles that are fired simultaneously <laughs> that each leave behind these very elaborate smoke trails and each and every yeah. single missile follows its own unique weird path or trajectory yeah the drunken missiles that they kind of weave yeah. drunken Those missiles the, that leave these the smoke trails you can expand on that and say it can refer to the action scenes that incorporate that in the general sense because why itano circus well it's it's literally flying circus in ways there's all sorts mm-hmm. of incredible aerial or space acrobatics these very elaborate moves associated with avoiding all this stuff and doing these things and for my money's worth shoji kawamori's mecha designs are nice and his directorial efforts to a point were good before he lost his mind yep. <laughs> the heart and soul of macross is the itano circus it's obsessive mm. levels of detail made by obsessive people for obsessive people. In other words, it's, like you said, a love letter to otaku. For otaku, mm-hmm. by otaku. Maybe there should be a clothing line called Fobo. <laughs> <laughs> it's the fanboy analog to Fubu. <laughs> it's too bad that Ichiro Itano, despite being absolutely top-rate animation director, is one of those shittiest directors ever, much like Hirano, because... Itano was in charge of two-thirds of what I call the holy manga video trinity of suck because he directed both Angel Cop and Violence Jack. And he did Gantz recently. But him and Koichi Ohata, they really need to stick to drawing. <laughs> like Shoji Kawamori, they need to find their element mm. and not do anything and else. And not really yeah. stick out with it. You know this film is really for the fans because the movie wastes no time. The first 15 <laughs> minutes, you are given... Everything that people love and enjoy about Macross, there's planes flying in space and the planes transform into robots and fire all these missiles and the Macross transforms and fires its big gun. You get to see the characters all being cool. There's Roy Poker, there's Mm -hmm. Max, Genius, there's Hikaru, there's Linman May singing a song. All that stuff is there right at the beginning and... If you have never heard of Macross in your life, obviously this isn't going to really be helping you because I haven't actually said the premise of the series yet. But the (laughs) premise basically is a spaceship crash lands on Earth, people rebuild it, and then the aliens invade. And what happens is the ship, due to a botched hyperspace, what they call fold, but basically traveling a very great distance instantaneously, is transported very far away from Earth like, say, to the edge of the solar system, and in addition to that, they transport all the residents of a nearby city. These aliens that they're fighting are called the Zentradi. The Zentradi are these 
gigantic humanoids that are consisting entirely of soldiers. They know nothing else but how to wage war. Yeah, it's very Spartan. Yes, mm-hmm. every member of the race is a soldier. They have no culture. They have no art. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows how to invent anything. Nobody knows how to repair things once they're broken. Yeah. They're just all soldiers, and they're not terribly bright. And on top <laughs> of that, the males are segregated entirely from yes. the females. Mm-hmm. And the females right. are known as Maltrandi. Mm-hmm. People... They're entirely separate. Obviously, people aren't breeding. Everybody is cloned in vats. Right. Everybody is genetically engineered. In fact, and they have no concept anymore yeah. of, of no love culture. and that breeding sort of things and culture. Of yeah. But aside from still being five times the size of us, they're still genetically compatible with human beings because we share a common ancestor known as the protoculture. So it's not that they're completely incapable of feeling. They just don't because... They've never been exposed to any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And really, that's what this movie is all about, is... Feeling. It's the silliest, most maudlin, cheesy, soap (laughs) opera, idealistic idea of love conquers all, and Mm. that a single song is more powerful than an entire fleet of warships. It's a very kind of shoujo concept. It is, and... Haruhiko Mikimoto's art style, his character designs, strike me as somewhat shoujo-ish. Mm-hmm. And he did the character designs for Macross and he did the character design for Eve and Megazone right. 2 3, as we just mentioned. Right. And he was, like Gerald said, one of those de facto iconic character designers of the 80s. You mm-hmm. don't see that look anymore. Characters don't look that way. Right. And that's another part of what makes Macross special to people. Right. It's that you don't see that kind of shading in Mecca anymore. You don't see characters with yeah. that sort of visual motif to them. I'm not just talking about their incredibly large 80s hair or <laughs> their clothes, but it's the Fred Patton ideal of anime as animated science fiction mm-hmm. at the core essence. There's this sort of whimsy about the entire piece no matter what's going on there's several music video montages throughout this movie Mm -hmm. there's a lot of scenes where there's no dialogue and just a vocal song as characters are doing something right kind of flighty and a similar thing as robot carnival that's just these shorts of you know a lot of them are i'm thinking of the more upbeat segments Mm -hmm. of robot carnival but let's say give an example Hikaru and Minmei, they meet up one night and they decide to go on a night on the town. I was just thinking of that scene and I was just going to bring that scene up. <laughs> and that's a sequence for those who don't know about it. They're in a park area or something and there's just lots and lots of these elevated platforms such that you jump on one of the platforms yes. and it makes it look like you're wearing some sort of fanciful costume and changes your outfit. Yeah. Like maybe you're a knight yeah. in shining armor. Or- mm-hmm. There's lots and lots of just things like that done just to do it because the writers were just like, this is going to be neat. This entire film so much tries to evoke these feelings out of people, like yeah. more so than almost any other anime that I've seen. It's very interesting because Macross is one of those series that it's sort of like a romance show that doesn't look like a romance show, like it's sneaky about it. That's right. Oh yeah, it's about dudes blowing each other up in robot planes. And yeah, it is, but really it's about emotions and people's relationships with one another. Right. You mentioned the whole thing about how, oh, love conquers all and this one song is great. And that's such a 
if you look at romance stories, I mean, that's really what it's all about, is everything is really framed in, like, okay, it's an obstacle to love conquering all, and that at the end, love wins out and fixes everything. Right. One of the key elements associated with Macross is the love triangle. Nowadays, mm-hmm. the triangle is far too obsolete a shape. You've now got to yes. have the love dodecahedron <laughs> where the guy can't choose between 12 girls. But back in the 80s, Kamagi Orange Road and Macross and stuff, it was two women vying for the affection of one guy. Who's... And very often you knew who that person would end up with. And Macross yeah. was not like that. Mm-hmm. No. Let's consider one other scene because Clarissa brought up the excellent point where the romance is the real thing, the war is the backdrop and the sci-fi elements are the backdrop. There's a, another great scene that I must confess I forgot existed until I rewatched this movie because it had been so long What's since that? I watched this film. It was just one of those things where in your head you know, oh, yeah. this movie is good. But you don't really have an excuse to go back and watch it. And the scene I'm thinking of, Hikaru and Minmei, they take a Valkyrie fighter, which is to say one of their jet planes that transforms into robots. They just take a plane and just go flying through the rings of Saturn solely mm-hmm. for the sake of causing neat things to happen with the dust because the rings of Saturn are oh, dust and ice particles. I forgot about that, that scene. scene too. And it's and such a beautiful scene that really it does advance the plot a little bit but I didn't remember that and I just it looks so great and so much of this movie is mm. just a lot of bright eyed things and yeah. maybe it's because a lot of really famous people did work on this movie or got their start in Macross, we've talked mm-hmm. about Koji Morimoto, we've talked about Toshihiro Hirano, Hideki Anno, Hideki Anno, before he went insane and made Evangelion, he was <laughs> making this. He was working on this. I think that maybe part of it is that Macross was this totally unexpected success. Like, nobody really thought that Macross would be as big as it was, and so I think the kind of miracle almost of that show that just became this huge thing and changed the face of anime. I think maybe that created this very sort of optimistic, romantic attitude, maybe that the people who worked on this sort of got into. I definitely feel that. that. I certainly feel that word optimistic. Yeah, optimistic really sums up. You really feel that even though it's obviously a commercial product designed to sell, you really feel that there are multiple hearts and souls put into what you're seeing Mm -hmm. on the screen. And one famous and obvious example that everyone really cites when talking about this movie as an example of this was there because the animators just wanted to have fun. Mm-hmm. The I know end the scene of the you're going to say. Right. The end of the movie where Hikaru's flying into the fortress, mm-hmm. he fires off a swarm of missiles, and for a split second, two of the missiles can be seen as not being missiles. One of them is a, kind of a Japanese drink, but the other one that is front and center in the camera for about a frame or so, it's a Budweiser can instead yep. of a missile. <laughs> it's just an Easter egg that they wanted to do. And another great example of a film that sort of evokes that Macross, do you remember the feeling? Interesting enough, Project Echo, which you reviewed Mm. several episodes back, came out a few years afterwards. They did the exact same thing as an homage to Macross, the movie. Koji Morimoto, he was one of the key animators. And we talked about Dirty Pair Project Eden Mm -hmm. in the last Mm -hmm. episode, that amazing opening credit sequence. 
and also the opening credit sequence for Urashiman, you can really feel like it was not solely for collecting a paycheck, or at yeah. least that's how it feels to me. Right. And that's the magic of this movie. Sure, the whole movie could say, when we say it's an otaku love letter, more cynical way of saying that is that the movie is fan service. Mm. I mean, there's a, yeah. a much vaunted shower scene with Minmay. The, yeah. There's a scene where they're in zero gravity, and she has a shower scene. But the thing is, that is like one second of the movie, and fans just went totally nuts for this. And whenever you talk about this movie, they mention that as like a big pivotal high point of the film, even though it's not even five <laughs> seconds worth. But yeah. that's just how big a deal people made of that scene, and you can right. totally tell that they put it in there because that's what fans wanted to see. I mean, and you know, this sure, is it's really cheesy and exploitative yeah. and all that. Yeah, it doesn't usually feel very exploitative, though. I think it's because you can feel so much love in it. You get the feeling that these people really love these characters and respect these characters, so it keeps it from feeling too exploitative, mm. I think. Interesting point you, know, you make it's there. It's kind of funny. I was just laughing when I, you were talking about the love triangle and how usually you can tell how it's going to play out, and I thought it was so funny that you talk about all these scenes with Hikaru and Menmei. But I haven't even mentioned Misa's name yet. Yes, considering mm-hmm. talking about how this is different from those ones where it's so obvious how the love triangle is going to end. It's and one here of those, we are talking over and over again about Minmay. It's one of those very few times that I can think of where the fans demanded it, and they did it, and it didn't suck. Yeah. Because yeah. a lot of times, like, it's a Gundam Seed Destiny effect. Yeah, I think it's one of the few shows, period, where things in terms of pairings and romance actually worked out in a way that didn't piss me off. Because, like, usually it'll be like... They end up with the person I really didn't want them to, or they end up with the person I was interested in, but it just wasn't really done very well, and I actually have very little complaint with. Right, and the thing about Minmay that's so interesting is that she's obviously a poster girl. Mm-hmm. She's yes. uh, you know made for pinups and that sort yep. of thing, but Misa's the one with the better character. And, and she's the as one. As much as fans wanted the shower scene, the real fan service here was the slap heard around the world. Yes! Hikaru slaps Minmei across the face for refusing to sing and being selfish and only caring about the two of them. And funnily enough, I think fans remember that just as much, (laughs) if not more, than the shower scene. So, Oh, yeah. What what does this mean? Does it mean anime fans, they want to see Minmei beaten up and naked? (laughs) It's not really about moe purity. It's more about about a grudge fuck. (laughs) I don't know. And I'd just like to mention that Misa Hayase is my favorite female character mm. in anime. Misa's really great. Yeah, even though initially she kind of comes off as being the stern, I no think I like Miria bitch. better. Miria, but... I like a lot. I think I like <laughs> Miria more as well, just because Miria kills a lot of people, <laughs> especially in this movie. Yeah, I think see... the goriest scenes of this film are Miria just yeah. single-handedly cutting through a squadron of guys. Yeah, I think Miria and Max are actually my favorite couple in Macross, but I do like Misa and Hikaru, and also Roy and Claudia. See, it's kind of lot. like Miria, she's awesome, and I love her for that. She's, yeah. she's just awesome. But Misa, in my opinion, she commands... Is more real character. She commands right. this enormous ship. I mean, thousands and thousands of people, their lives depend on her. Mm-hmm. And I respect that, that they made her just an Capable, awesome Capable, even though Captain yeah. Global was in charge of the ship. Yes. She wasn't really just 
a pushover. No. She wasn't just there to look cute. She wasn't cute. Sayaka from Mazinger Z. <laughs> yeah. Interesting point about Max and Miria. For some reason, it took me years to catch on one big difference between the series and the movie. In the Macross TV series, Max Genius, for those who don't know, is this ace pilot, probably the mm-hmm. best one that the mm-hmm. Earth Force has got or the Macross crew has got. And Miria is that for the Maltrandi. And after Max defeats her, they just fall in love because he just looks at her and says, you're beautiful and I could never do whatever. And that's all it takes. And they get married. And that's totally ridiculous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so hot, though. If it did happen for real, it would end up badly. Yeah. But it's in such this a... show, which is yeah. so melodramatic, that's just how it works. And Miria ends up undergoing micronization to become human-sized. Mm-hmm. In the movie, what happens is after Max defeats Miria... He actually makes himself into a giant to fight alongside her. And this is never stated, never mentioned out loud, but he undergoes making himself giant size to mate her, to be with her, Mm -hmm. which is an interesting change. And I just never noticed it. It was just like one of those things where I took it for granted, where it's like, hmm, yeah, they're both fighting in the Maltrandi sort of battle armor. Yeah, it's hard to notice. I actually didn't even know. It's just a little detail. And it's not something I ever noticed until now and i've seen this movie a good bit of times and so i've seen it one more time in a way i didn't know about hmm. because one of our listeners erwin rosales <laughs> god bless his soul he found for me the dub of this movie this movie was released in america a long time ago back i'll in admit that the this 80s. was the first version that i saw of it hmm. we've been talking about in previous shows how there's Just For Kids video and Best Film and Video as well. Mm-hmm. And what would happen would be that Best Film and Video would release a movie, and then the Just For Kids version, which would usually be far easier to find, would be the same movie, only edited to pieces. And most people saw this movie. We're talking about a time when fan subs were hard to come by. There was mm-hmm. no cable internet. Mm-hmm. A lot of people saw this movie through the Just For Kids dub called Clash of the Bionoids. And what that is, is a dub of this movie with about 30 minutes removed from it. So it makes very little sense. (laughs) That is not what Erwin Rosawa sent me. He sent me the best film and video version or slash century group. I think they might have also done the Magnus the Robot release, Hmm. but I'm not sure. I never knew this tape existed. Most people yeah, never, really never saw this tape even back then. Wow. It was far more common to locate it. This is just called Super Dimensional Fortress Macross. It says Macross on the box. The back maybe has the same ad copy as the Just for Kids thing. Was mentions Bionoids. At no point is that term ever said in the film. This is, for all intents and purposes, an uncut, dubbed release of this movie. I didn't even huh. know... That it existed. Yeah, I didn't either. How's the dub? It's the same dub, isn't it? It's the same dub, and the dub is legendarily poor. Let me (laughs) explain. Okay, so it is the same dub. Yes. Like Gerald said, the Megazone 2-3 Part 2 dub was made as an English teaching aid. This was another one. And like the original Golf Force dub. It was dubbed into English by people from Hong Kong who speak English as a second language. And as a teaching aid for students learning English... They intentionally put mistakes into it for them to catch. You can just play one of these now. This was made famous in bad American dubbing. Both of these were, actually. But before I get to the intentional mistake, let's give you an idea of how poor the dubbing is. Tiny pieces. 
black doesn't tell us about the woman. That doesn't tell us much about anything either. I mean, you can see it's not the best, like, yeah. command of the... Admittedly, those are the aliens talking, but let's go to another scene. This is a scene where Roy and Claudia and Hikaru and Misa are all sitting after work getting drinks. What's the look for? No need for that, Misa. Relax. We're off duty. You could be a girl for a change. I was born the way I am. <laughs> Misa. That's too bad, because you're good. You're an excellent officer, even if you are only a girl. But don't go putting men down all the time. Now, you listen to me. Ah, uh, but A man does come on strong. Sometimes that's his nature. But a girl has to fall in love, so don't resist it. Just let the man overpower you for once. <laughs> Shut up. You talk far too much. Uh, all right. I'll show you the correct way to approach a girl. Just watch Jet Jockey in action. <laughs> so, so the joke God there is that Roy. Roy points at Hikaru and says, let the man overpower you. Yeah. You mean the boy? They're very young. Hikaru is like maybe 18 if that. Mm-hmm. Misa's not very much older. But there's a lot of little mistakes. Wasn't Hikaru like 15 or something? In the TV series he was. Um, but oh. in the movie, he was older. But oh, for okay, example, right. the very opening scene, another little intentional mistake. Misa Hayase is informing Skull Squadron that they'll be within enemy weapons range within 30 minutes. When it's very obvious it's 30 seconds. That's the kind of mistake that gets made and leads to hmm. crazy hilarity. Like, oh... Most of them, though, are really small, like saying two days instead of three. But you'll notice that the dialogue in this dub is actually, other than that, very close to the Japanese. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Most of the changes were things like adding dialogue during music sequences where they had mouths moving and we heard nothing. In one scene, Minmei is talking about her dress is made of the latest light holography technology. That's too complicated a thing to say if you're trying to learn English. They just said she had the dress made for her concert. Mm -hmm. Minor stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You could see the names were unchanged. And so I would say it's more accurate than even Robotech was mm -hmm. as yeah. far as that goes. The only real alteration that was here, and it's not technically an alteration, so I don't really... Well, there's two things. One I have no problem with. Even the DVD or rips that I've seen, the Zentradi don't speak Japanese or any human language. They just speak gibberish and it's subtitled in Japanese text. Those subtitles aren't present on this print of the film. They just speak English. Right. Which means to say that there's some version of it out there where that's not on the print. But the other part that's different is the end credits. There's an animated sequence during that. It's not present. It just goes straight to text credits. And the reason for that is because that animation was not finished initially. It wasn't added until later. So it's technically not a cut. It's more just a different sort of version and other than that if they were to get like some decent actors in this this would be perfectly acceptable today yeah still as far as the plot goes it's fairly you know moves along at a pretty rapid pace there's some instances where misa just has to magically know the history of how the races all came to be eons ago Mm -hmm. Just for the sake of moving the plot along, because right. the real high point of this movie, 
and what has to be probably one of the single most memorable sequences in all of anime Mm -hmm. is, of course, the final six-minute or so battle sequence, which is still one of the most ambitious and stunningly animated sequences Mm -hmm. of all time. It's just absolutely chaotic violence. All sorts of crazy stuff is going on. And it's juxtaposed by what is now one of the most memorable songs in all of anime. It's just a pop love ballad entitled Do You Remember Love? Or more literally, Love, Do You Remember? And that's where the name of the movie comes from because that's kind of the theme of the movie. It's just a plain, simple, ordinary song like what would have been a top 40 song Mm -hmm. millennia ago. And that was all it takes to win this war because the idea is they play this song to the enemy forces who have never heard a song in their life but they have something in their genes in their makeup that stirs up some sort of emotion and just by hearing this they lose their will to fight or they question the point of it and so some of the bad guys because there's different factions they end up renouncing their ways of war and turning against the real bad guys and so it's not just one ship against an armada it's because of love mm-hmm Right. They changed their minds, and peace ends up happening. Totally sappy, totally goofy, totally idealistic. There's just no way this sort of thing would fly today. I mean, Mm. if this came out today, it would be the cheesiest thing ever. That's why, to me, this is such a product of its time. It came out at a time when it could only have come out at that time. Mm -hmm. Right. And the people who made this movie and watched this movie... You can feel that organic life to it that I don't even feel in subsequent works. I mean, I love Macross Plus, make no mistake, but it doesn't feel no, it doesn't. the same as this movie does. I mean, it, it's got stunningly gorgeous animation and battle sequences. Yeah. And they tried the Sharon very, Apple scene. Yeah, they tried very, very hard and they got very close to capturing the feel of this movie. But you can't recreate this this is this like purpose, a once-ever like, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You, yeah, you, you can just tell the difference in the attitude, I think. Like, Macross Plus just... Much more serious. More cynical, too, I think. Right, I think that's what happened, is that attitude, we all got cynical. Not that it's necessarily not a fans. bad thing, but it's just different. Mm-hmm. Right, we lost our idealistic yeah. nature to us. We were young, and it's not just us, it's the people making the stuff. Mm. Even they would look at it and say, this yeah. is silly. I mentioned Hideaki Anno. Right. Ten years later, he was making Evangelion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of like how if you look at like Otaku no Video as opposed to like Genshin or, or and Welcome to the NHK. And Welcome to the NHK, like Otaku no Video is this very sort of like yeah, let's get up and we'll make the whole world into otaku and we're totally awesome and we can do this. Whereas and now it's like, oh god, we're such losers. You mentioned Otaku no Video. The big catch for them yeah. was yeah. when they were standing in line yep. waiting for Nasca, and the guy mm-hmm. shows up and he's got character designs for the Minecraft movie. You remember love? And I'm right yes. there going, hell yeah, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yes. And this is just something that I kind of always thought about with this movie. I remember watching this for the first time, and this might sound a bit cheesy, but I always thought what this movie would be like watching it in a theater in the day that it came out. Just yeah, there's watching. so many oh, I things. Like, I, I have no idea what it would be like to watch Arrivederci Yamato in the theater. Yeah. I mean, I can yeah. read about it, 
Yeah, I wish that I could. I can hear I about mean, just stories, but... The ending of it, just when everything fades to... I mean, I'm spoiling right at the ending where Minmei is just counting in rhythm, and it just fades out, and then it fades in with her song. I just would have loved to have been in there. I know I could never have been in there, but... It would have just been enough. Yeah, you can't really ever capture that. Yeah, it's possible that that sequence might not have been in the original theatrical cut. I don't know because I wasn't there. I know that there were additional scenes that they wanted to be in the credits that they later put in Macross Flashback 2012, mm-hmm. which is why that last sequence, it's just like a montage of almost what happened like, to everyone watching the thing, mm-hmm. sort of, mm-hmm. right. after a sense. And so it's been so many years since then, but... This movie is just as good as I remember seeing it originally. It's not I want to like, watch this again now. And it gets better every time you watch it. I want everybody to see this movie. I'm going to put a download link for it because one of the biggest tragedies of the American anime industry and of Japan is the legal the rights problems. concerning yeah. the rights to this movie. Mm-hmm. They've right. been tied up in litigation for years and years because there's Big West here and there's Tatsunoko here. and Which is and why Studio we don't have this movie on DVD. And so we have not gotten the movie license because they can't decide in Japan who owns the rights to it. Because after right. lawsuit after lawsuit, they keep coming up with contradicting verdicts. Mm-hmm. And I know we never say never, but if there's going to be an exception to never say never, I think Do You Remember Love Is It? Yeah. yeah, we saw it long ago, but that dub that was re- released here, those rights have long since expired. Mm-hmm. Those were released shortly after. And like you said, in happened. terms of an uncut version, you know, we didn't even know the one existed. Right. So it's how hard to get a hold of it's you know, very a full hard. version? I, could, I, I mean, couldn't even get a copy of Clash of the Binoids. I went to yeah. rent it, and the tape was basically unwatchable at least mm-hmm. two or three times. I actually have a copy. And my copy actually does break up a couple of times, so... Yeah, well, the other thing is that this these movies, it's recorded on EP, mm-hmm. not even SP, because mm-hmm. it's just right. it's cheaper to do. So yeah. having that and this movie being over two decades old will make it hard to preserve this stuff. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, there is at least one or two digital fan subs of it. I'm subtitling isn't necessarily the greatest but really this is a visual movie at its heart yeah and probably most of the audience has already seen macross anyway so you pretty much already know right and even even if you haven't i i mean it may not make sense but it's just such a yeah such a gorgeous film i can see in the days of the early 80s when there were the anime viewing rooms at the sci-fi cons <laughs> i can just see people watching this movie not knowing a thing about what's being said right and not even caring yeah I think people should really see this, especially maybe newer fans who haven't watched a lot of older stuff, because it's like, to me, this is the perfect example of, you were saying it's such a product of its time, but also, like, with the animation quality and the attention to detail put into it, this is sort of the core and the pinnacle of the old school character designs and these old school kind of attitudes. And it's like a lot of people, I think when you try and get them to watch older shows, we hear a lot of like, Oh, older shows are ugly. And a lot of it is TV budgets are limited and everything had to be drawn by hand because there were no digital shortcuts whatsoever. And so you end up with a lot of animation mistakes. I mean, if you look at the Macross TV series, there are some, there are some episodes that, just that are terrible. just awful. Oh yeah. They're just hideous to look at because 
of budget concerns and time concerns. So I think a lot of the beauty of the character designs and the quality of what was being done sometimes gets obfuscated by those budget concerns. But if you look at this, where all of those budget issues are removed, and you can see exactly what it was that they were trying to do all the time, I think it's really the best example of... Yeah, they, they kind of had the same attitude when they made Project Aiko, and I don't want to make this about Project mm-hmm. Aiko. But, <laughs> but it does, you're right, I mentioned it already as well, as having a very similar kind of feel to it. Project Aiko is basically a humorous approach. It's obviously comedy, and this is the drama mm-hmm. of the same ilk. I think with Macross in general, and both the original TV series and this movie... There's a lot of anime series, and it's like, I really like this show, but there's almost always some reservations. It's like, yeah, I really like this show, but God, these female characters are so horribly sexist portrayals. The bridge bunnies, so to speak. Yeah, or like, oh, I like this show, but God, there's this horribly racist depiction of black characters or something. All these things that might detract from it, and it's... Macross, I'm not going to say it's totally perfect, that there's not a single thing that I was ever bothered by, but I have to say that more so than a lot of other things, like, it really surprised me with, like, yeah, yeah, there are bridge, the bridge bunnies, and so maybe there are a few characters that are semi-annoying, and, like, yes, I loathed Minmay, but for the most part, I was really surprised by how forward the portrayals of the female characters were like yeah people talk about the much vaunted claudio roy relationship because that was an interracial relationship where you never really would see that yeah and claudia as a black character in animes is not really a very token black character she just happens to be black it didn't feel contrived it didn't feel like oh they're black and they're he's white whatever it just felt like they belong together. Right. It wasn't like we're making a, a big statement. It just right. it just was. Yeah. And yeah. part of the and love that people were drawn into with Robotech, and I know I'm going to get some hate for this, but I think a lot of the magic that people found in Robotech initially was the aspects of Macross shining through, mm-hmm. despite the various changes and such. But admittedly, the Robotech adaptation of Macross isn't that far off the mark. And so I think that's why... The fandom grew because of that. And in the case of this movie, I'm really sad that this wasn't going to be Robotech the movie. Mm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if that had happened, then maybe Harmony Gold or someone would have the rights to that and they could yeah. release this here. <laughs> but it just, that never ended up happening. But yeah, it's like I just think about, like in so many other shows, if this had played out, usually it would be like, oh God, it would be done horribly or it would piss me off. The Max and Midia thing, well, this was more in the series because the movie kind of condensed it, but I remember I really liked them both as characters, and then for a little bit, I was worried that it was kind of playing out in like a sort of contrived sexist kind of way, because like, oh god, they're gonna stick her in a dress and marry her to Max, and then they're gonna totally like take out all of her backbone, and then they didn't do that. We got baby tossing and... Oh, yes. ...in the missile bay, and... (laughs) flying out to kick ass together and we talked about claudia and how good of a portrayal she was and how it just really didn't feel demeaning at all and we talked about the shower scene the fan service that it didn't really feel exploitative and i think that it was so good about that and not that it was the only show that did it or anything but that 
respect and love that they had for the characters really shown through that yeah Minmay was like the pinup girl eye candy but the point was when she was just the selfish eye candy pinup girl she couldn't be with Hikaru that was a bad thing you know you couldn't just have her be a piece of ass you know you had to have somebody like Misa or like Minmay maybe eventually developed into being who might have been beautiful but had a brain and backbone and was a full person. I think it really did a good job of just portraying everybody really well and never being too cheap or exploitative or taking too much of the easy way out. I guess I'll just put in my final bit for this movie. I'm going to sound horribly cheesy when I say this. <laughs> I think every... It's a cheesy movie, so that's okay. I think every anime fan should watch Megazone 2-3. I think every anime fan must watch DYRL. All this passion that we have for these crazy, weird Japanese cartoons, the reason that we go to anime conventions to spend nuts on money on stupid merchandise, this is kind of a love letter to all of that. It's all of the, our passion for this thing that we do. As cheesy as that sounds, I think that's what it is. So I think, I think you have, too, yeah. I think you have an obligation, if you're an anime fan, to watch this. The name of the movie is Do You Remember Love? It's been 20 years, and I don't know if I remember that, but but I remember this film. <laughs> and I'll continue to do so, even though no one else I know seems to. But, I mean, this movie, this is it. This is what, what it's all people about. really felt. This is where the good stuff is. And a lot of people I know who are growing detached from anime, it's not to say that anime has become bad, Mm. But you can't deny that anime doesn't really feel or embody what's in this. Yeah. And so I can see why a lot of people say that they're growing away from mm. anime because they're not feeling the same way. It doesn't stir the same emotions within them as stuff like this used to because people have changed. The market has changed. The fans right. have changed. And it's not to say that anime that comes out now isn't good, it's just, it's something different. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm sure there's things that come out today that you never would have seen back then. Right. That are still great. Would we have seen the things like Satoshi Khan's movies back in the 80s? Maybe not. It's just a different thing and it's still right. great. We just have to accept that things have changed. Well, some people don't. I mean, I'm just saying, mm -hmm. if you want to really find out what it is that people are on about when they say they like the 80s anime. Mm -hmm. One thing that will take a hundred minutes of your time, not even a series or anything like that, one movie, one shot you can do that in, make it be Do You Remember Love? I really, really yeah. wish I could own this on DVD. This is the kind of movie I wanted that I this on DVD. $70. Yeah. Maybe you'll begin to understand us more if you watch this movie and you've never seen it before. <laughs> I don't know if there's any hope for that. but <laughs> Maybe not. So that is going to do it for show number 50. 
of the Anime World Order podcast. We made it somehow. I want to give a special mm. thanks to everybody who stuck with us and all the people who are joining up now. Hope you stick around. Hope we didn't scare everybody we off. We don't know why you guys put up with us, but thank And I mean, you. to be honest, when we started this thing, we were like, if we can get 150 people, we'll be awesome. Yeah. We'll be happy with that. And we've and got over a thousand. Numbers never really were a concern to us. Yeah. We were always just about, I want to talk about this stuff that I want to put out the word about. And mm -hmm. if yeah. anyone wants to listen, they can listen. I think yep. the more important thing is how many people have said, I bought Giant Robo because of you, or I bought Crusher Joe because of you, or... Things that they wouldn't have found otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, I never would have bought Ode to Kirihito. Right. Or They Were Eleven if you hadn't talked about it. For the shameless bit of podcaster shills and stuff, there was a time long ago, like several months ago, we were talking about Podcast Pickle and these other <laughs> podcast directory sites, and for a while we were number two on there, and then around January or so they reset everything. We mentioned it maybe once, but didn't make that big of a deal of it. I think that now that we've got more listeners, we can mention it again. If you go to www.podcastpickle.com and register for that site, and then add us to your favorites, as well as the other anime podcasts, especially the weekly anime review one, because right mm -hmm. now, as I check, he is back in the top ten, because he used to be maybe number three, and we'd be number two, or maybe mm -hmm. it was the other way around right. or something. Definitely listen to his show, because if you like us, you'll like what he's talking about, too. Right. Add the other anime podcasts as well. There's plenty of them. I've got a lot of them on the sidebar in the show notes. Check that out. There's other podcast directories like Dig. If you're yeah. registered on Dig, we're listed there. Go ahead and do that, just for jokes. Yeah. You can dig specific episodes of the mm -hmm. show. And see. we really like that, because it lets us know yeah. <laughs> which episodes are you actually can see good. What, yeah, what episodes the other people on Dig like the most, and vote for your favorite episodes, so we can kind of see. Yeah, it doesn't help us if you just go through and like dig every episode. Right. Just to remind you that we do have that contest for the silver keychain. Might put a picture up of it. So, as we said, write to us and tell us about a show that you wouldn't have known had you not heard it from us. And with any luck, maybe a good bit of them will be things like Megazone 2-3, Princess 2-2, and Macross Do You Remember Love. Oh, if they hadn't heard of Macross Do You Remember Love. But you have to mean it. Yeah, and even if you hate what we pointed you to, that doesn't matter. It's that you didn't know about it and you went out there and you tried it. Yeah. I mean, if you suffered yeah. through Odin because of us and now you want to stay <laughs> That's a perfectly valid that response as yes, well. Perfectly valid. Once again, the email address to send those entries to is animeworldorder at gmail.com. Mm -hmm. And I guess while I'm here, I may as well pimp that voicemail account <laughs> one more time, 206-666-4AWO. With any luck, we were responsible and put some voicemails interspersed throughout this episode. We can only hope yeah. that I remember to do that. Oh, and remember to include your name and address. And like we said, it's open to everyone in the world. Yep, because we've got listeners from all over. Yep. So, with that in mind, next week, what are we going to discuss? Uh, well, I'm going to take a look at one of the uh, trilogy of movies that Yoshikazu Yasuhiko worked on in the 80s, some of the greatest sci-fi action. I actually covered one of them already, which was Crusher Joe. This is Venus Wars I'm going to be taking a look at. The other one that might be something I cover later will be Arion. But that's for a future seeing, episode. Arian's a lot harder. I remember seeing Venus Wars a while back. Sci-Fi Channel. Been a long time, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of people may remember it from being on Sci-Fi Channel's yep. Anime Week or Saturday Anime. That is it's actually a, where I saw it. Yeah. It's a very polarizing that's how I first movie. Saw it. 
Was that one that was heavily edited on Sci-Fi Channel? There was some editing, but not a whole not lot, because there's not too much to take out. Right. One day I will cover Arion. Arion is up there with Crusher Joe. It's definitely the most unknown of the three. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be taking a look at an OAV by a director that I really like a lot, and I think that Gerald you like as well. Yes, very um, good guy. Akitaro Daiichi, yeah, we all like him, he's a cool dude, he does some really good stuff. And uh, this one is called Animation Runner Kuromi. One of the few directors out there that can do the goofy, wacky hijinks that I'm stealing from Dave and Joel, that I actually really enjoy everything that he does with it. Oh yeah, stuff like Cromarty, Sexy Commando, yeah. mm-hmm. all that stuff, and Kodocha, obviously. Yep. yep. All that stuff is And the is kooky, good. wacky hijinks of now and then, no, here and there. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the trump card that you play. Yeah. <laughs> and Fruits Basket. Yeah. I am going to be reviewing something that I took too long to review. I was given a copy of this. Should have reviewed it months ago, or you know, weeks ago anyway, and did not. But this is a new title from Vertical Inc., who publishes manga such as Buddha which was great, and Otakiri Hito, which we reviewed, and which also is also great. great. But this one is not a Osami Tezuka work. It is known as Two Terra by Keiko Takemiya. Yes. And this is a very, very important work that is going to be three volumes long. I've only got volume one, and they'd actually sent this to me as a sort of advanced release, but it is now out in stores because we are so not timely. I'm very jealous because I've got mine on order from Amazon and they haven't shipped it. Because yeah, and I walk into the bookstore <laughs> and I just see it there. It's, it's coupled uh, with Japanese Schoolgirl Inferno. Patrick Macias' new book, which everybody should buy because it's cheap <laughs> and it's awesome. I pre-ordered it. <laughs> yeah. So look forward to that. We thank you for enduring more of our bullshit, even <laughs> though we are mongers of hate and yes. people who condone and encourage bootlegging. We thank you for listening in, and we hope you will do so next week. See you around.